Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Peyton, non-attorney spokesperson. Janelle and Associates Law Firm with Principal Office in Houston, Texas is responsible for the content of this ad. Attention all active or retired military. If you are diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss after using yellow and black or yellow and olive dual-ended earplugs, you may be entitled to significant cash compensation. These earplugs permitted damaging sounds to enter the ear canal. If you served in the military and were later diagnosed with hearing loss or tinnitus, call 800-871-7344 right now to see if you qualify for significant cash compensation. The manufacturer knew of the defect but did not warn its customers. Complaints alone that the manufacturer manipulated test results to make it appear that the plugs met government standards. If you deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan anytime from 2003 through 2015 and are now suffering from diagnosed hearing loss or tinnitus, you may be entitled to significant cash compensation. Call 800-871-7344 right now. Hurry, time is limited. Call 800-871-7344 now to see if you qualify for cash compensation. Call 800-871-7344. That's 800-871-7344. 800-871-7344. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. My name is Christopher Mukigana Harrington. I'm joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you feeling today after that long, hard match with Mark Haskins? I'm good. This, this is Mr. Howard Brandon Thurston calling from Buffalo, New York. I just got done wrestling for Empire State Wrestling last night. I, I, did, I did wrestle Mark Haskins, who is a very, very good wrestler from the U.K., very intense. Uh, so, uh, a couple questions. Number one, did you win? I did win. Caught him with the Maestro Cradle, just for you, Mookie. Oh, my goodness. That, that, that makes me very excited. I'm going to see, seek this match out. How can I watch this ESW match? That, that's a good question, isn't it? It'd be, it'd be great if ESW uh, monetized their video somehow so you could so they could get some money from you in exchange for your viewership. But uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I can help you out and send you a, a link one of these days. I would look forward to that. So you, you beat Mr. Haskins. Is was Mr. Haskins in the U.S. for a, an extended indie tour? Did he come in just for ESW? Uh, well, he's doing a whole weekend. I don't, I don't know if he's doing anything before or after, but he worked uh, Smash in, in Ontario the day before ESW in the Buffalo area on Saturday, and then he's working Smash again. Uh, we're recording on Sunday today. Nice, nice. Okay, so you were able to to be successful here, but you said it was a very intense match. Was it a farmer's uh, market street fight, or what was happening? Uh, it was a very technical style wrestling match, um, and we had a bunch of new production stuff at ESW, so it was very very different uh, look and, and atmosphere. Like the ring was was lit, the the crowd area was dark, but uh, I don't know. A lot of people seem to like it, so I'll, I'll, I'll let them have that that opinion. But uh, yeah, it was fun. What was what was the talk of the uh, locker room? Was there anybody talking about that? Um, the study that came out in the journal Brain, all about the the uh, cause of CTE is in fact not concussions, but just blows to the head in general. No, we were too busy uh, doing enziguries and super kicks for that. But I did uh, afterward have have a, a, an intelligent conversation with uh, with our, our listeners. Uh, 
Dave Jarka and Jonathan Ash about uh, we talked about everything from Sinclair Broadcasting. We talked about CTE. We talked about the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea. Referee Ash listened to the show. Shout yeah. out to uh, yeah. to Jonathan there. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote an article this week all about. You've been listening to other people talk, like uh, Mr. George Barrios, uh, who had yet another talk. Uh, you even did some Barrios bingo during his talk on January eighteenth. I think it was a Tuesday, maybe. And uh, yeah, he so. gave a talk. Which one was this? Which, which conference did he go to? Was it the Needham conference? He was at the Needham conference in New York City as on January 18th, which was Tuesday. Now, was that then um, Laura Martin? No, it was, it was Thursday. Comments? I'm sorry. Yeah, and that was, that was Laura, Laura Martin hosting. Uh, she introduced him anyway. Um, I'm, it's not clear to me who else was in the room. There was an audience of some sort. I'm not sure if it was just financial analysts or, or what it was. But there were people asking him questions after he gave his opening sales pitch, as he always does. He was also on Mad Money. We can talk about that after after this, too. Did, did you know that WWE just put out a press release, but they dated it the 18th? I never saw this. It said, record-breaking digital results, number one, most viewed sports channel, 20 million subscribers, yeah. record 20-plus billion views, most liked at- active U.S. athlete with 45 million likes for John Cena, and that Raw is the number two series overall for total Twitter interactions, more than Game of Thrones and Walking Dead. Number two is the most... It is YouTube is the number two most viewed channel of all time. Do you know what uh, the number one most viewed channel is? It's like a in- Indian music, right? Yeah, it's called T series, and it's even funnier that when you like look up the Wikipedia page for it, um, a it talks about how the company kind of got its start by selling selling pirated uh, Indian soundtracks, which I thought was really funny. But the other thing that made it really funny is that the name of the company is Super Cassettes Industries Limited. So and, and, if, uh, and you're talking about the investor presentation, right? No, this was uh, I just went to cor- I just went to corporate.wwe.com and on the company news there's this infogram that they they have plotted on there mentioning that oh. they have 67 finalist or honorary digital social awards. Uh the Up Up Down Down channel has 1.3 million subscribers, the Bella Twins has 1 million subscribers and they have 850 million social media followers with 14 million followers on Instagram. I have no idea and what context they, to put this in, but this is these are these numbers are big. Yeah, it's it's interesting just because, like I say, I went to the website today and saw this, and I think I went to the website yesterday and I did not see this. So this is um it's this one is of those some Easter eggs that they hide at corporate.w.com. Yeah, they also find. there's also something in here about giving away a um, twenty five thousand dollars scholarship um, in honor of the twenty fifth anniversary of Raw uh, for full sale. And uh, again, had not seen that. I did get an email from WWE this week. Did you get one about the fruit snacks? No. What, what, oh, I'm. You're on some special I, email list. I am. I because this was not a normal list because it didn't come from WWE in a normal way. It came from a certain guy at a, a corporate communications guy at at uh, WWE specifically emailed me this. It says, "Good morning. Just a heads up on the below partnership with PLB Sports announced today in regards to fruit snacks called WWE Superstar Snacks." And then it just uh, mentions, you know, maybe maybe because of my extensive uh, grocery history, they wanted to make sure that I knew about this. Yeah, no, they and, know uh, that you're nicer to them, and and I, I think I'm on the bad list. I, I I I'm very shocked. This is probably the first time that I've gotten one of these like super exclusive WWE uh, mentions. I, I should probably write them back and be like, I refuse to endorse a product I've never tasted. Can you uh, <laughs> send me a free sample? Uh, because uh, I do like fruit snacks, but yeah, so. Uh, 
didn't mean to completely derail our conversations here. I was going to WWE.com so I can go click on the investors link. So then I could click on the SEC filings and other documents link. So then I could click on the investor presentation link. And then I could find the secret investor presentation, which is what he was referencing in a lot of his speeches here. Yeah. Um, but it, it's funny because it's like you have to be vigilant. You have to host a podcast about professional wrestling economics and financials in order to know to go to these places and find these documents and save them and review them over time. Uh, and luckily, you and I do. Yes. <coughs> so George was at the Needham Conference is where we started on this one. I'm going to tweet out this infograph so people know what yeah. we're talking about. They can look at my timeline if they yeah. want to see it for themselves. And so um, she was at this. He was at this conference, and um, he, he, the bingo card that you had up there had a lot of the uh, the phrases we expected him to have. And uh, you did, in fact, get a bingo at one point. But uh, was there any other news? We covered the other George Barrios talk in depth for our Patreon su- supporters at Patreon.com/slash WrestleNomics. Uh, mm-hmm. Very in depth. In fact, we were very very specific about all that information, yeah. and. Uh, it, 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 was there anything new in this talk? Was there any reason this talk was interesting? There was a very interesting moment in the Q&A where someone asked, asked George about um, – he seemed to be getting at – trying to ask about how much of the wrestling is fake and how much of it is real. But anyway, it turned into a question about some, something approximately what, what WWE's relationship is with talent. We, we couldn't really hear the, the questioner very clearly, but we could hear George George's response. Um, and he, he went on to talk about talent contracts. And uh, to be fair to him, I guess we'll just read the, the whole quote. He says, we're not specific about, about our talent agreements, but generally what we like to say is it's a mutually beneficial association. So they're under agreements, but both parties could terminate them in pretty short order. So we're not trying to lock anyone up. It has to work for both parties, and that model has worked for a long time and led to a succession of iconic stars, starting with Bruno San Martino and ending with John Cena. So, and and yeah. the reason he, he kind of transitioned there is he has a slide on uh, slide number 11 if you're looking at the investor deck where it shows five people here. And it, it shows Bruno Sammartino and Andre the Giant, Steve Austin, The Rock, and Charlotte Flair. It says WWE has created heroes in the ring for more than five decades. But um, I think he was trying to get back to his talking points of, you know, we, we don't – from this person to this person, we, we've had this thing. So they love to use Sammartino as one of their tent poles. And it's interesting that he, he mentions John Cena, probably a lot more accurate than Charlotte Flair for a major star. But um, the, 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 that's the really not the big thing, question. Yeah, yeah, the, the interesting the, the thing here is what, what you just said is, is – is false because we know that Rey Mysterio, Neville, Daniel Bryan have tried to get out of their contracts at, at various points and they were not able to. Um, and in fact, we have quite a few contracts and the, one of the most recent contracts we have, not the most recent, is Stephanie McMahon's 2013 talent contract, which because she's a corporate officer, WWE had to release. And uh, the language in the contract says, says that the promoter can terminate with 90 days notice, but it doesn't say anything about the wrestler being able to terminate at any time. Yeah. So I, I talked to my wife a little bit about this, about, you know, why is the contract mute on, on what the rights are of the wrestler? And essentially what her response to me was that WWE is in such a gray area with the way that they create independent contractor agreements with people that it's hard to even use the logic of normal, normal labor law to define what is and is not allowed. And so it's it's difficult to say, do wrestlers have the ability to get out of contracts? Because in a sense, 
they do have the ability to get out of contract. Whereas if you never want to wrestle again yeah. and you're not going to wrestle again, or you can get out. Yeah, you, you can get out. Mm-hmm. If you want to get a release from WWE, though, you have to be in under a different set of terms. So like Brock Lesnar got out of his WWE contract. He said, I didn't want to be a wrestler anymore. I want to go play for the Vikings. And WWE gave him an early release. And they, they made him sign a very long contract that basically said, here's your early release. Here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not allowed to do. And in it, there's a non-compete clause. Now, for Brock Lesnar, it was a 10-year worldwide non-compete. Unfortunately, that's considered too broad and too large of a scope. Uh, for him that he was able to challenge it in court and basically won because they said it's not legal for you to say for 10 years you cannot work in the wrestling and fighting industry, but we're releasing you from a contract. That's especially worldwide the scope because it's very difficult to enforce a contract like that on a worldwide basis. So um, it, what what essentially started to change over time is that they, they kind of changed some of the language around how long could you be in a non-compete and how that worked. But all it says right now in their contract is that basically a promoter – can choose to terminate you and then there's 90 days within those 90 days they have to pay you the downside guarantee for those three months and then um there's also a a term on 11.3 b which says what brandon it says upon expiration it basically says that for one year you can't you can't work for another professional wrestling sports entertainment mixed martial arts and or ultimate fighting organization that is not owned by the promoter, which in this case, of course, is WWE. And and I think that the key of this and this one year clause does seem to be pretty um, consistent when I looked at other contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is basically saying if you don't have a release from us, then this is where you're stuck. Now, what we know is that you can there's lots of people that have left WWE and then gone to other companies. When when um, Damian Sandow left, he became Aaron Rex over in TNA a few months later. Uh, Alberto Del Rio, when he left, he went to go work for other companies. We've seen lots and lots and lots of people go work for other companies. So this one-year term is uh, fanciful, let's say. And I think what it really gets to is the fact that there is not much of a um, a true non-compete that WWE can use. Hmm. But what they can do is say, if I don't give you a release, if you just try to basically breach your contract and go somewhere else, I can sue that other company. And at the very worst, that other company is going to get tied up in litigation and they're going to be very unhappy about it. And so most of these other companies are not going to touch you unless you can show that you have that release from WWE. So in some ways, you, you could almost say that it's more of a um, uh, an agreement that it's too much of a hassle to deal with someone who wants a release but doesn't have one than it is to say that they absolutely are in, impossible for them to work. So could Daniel Bryan, in theory, terminate his contract? I guess so. But most likely he would still be under the basis of that contract if he went to go work for somebody else and everybody else he would work for would also then get pulled into that lawsuit. And so it's it's very unlikely that anyone would take that risk. And, and by the way, this ex- excerpt specifies in the United States for a period of up to one year, not worldwide, at least in the Stephanie McMahon contract. Yeah, and I and I really think that um, it says, however, if no lesser period is specified by the promoter in the notice of termination, the period shall be one year. And so I think that also goes to the fact that when you get a release letter, and uh, we do have some examples of release letters we could look at. You know, um, I just most recently uh, Nicole Bass's release letter came out uh, as part of, of some of the reporting Bix was doing. But we we can look at those, and they basically say, I think at that time, what the what the release set specifies in terms of, you know, you are released from this company. We're releasing you from this contract. And so you could argue that's when you, you get out of your contract is when you get one of those release letters. Um, 
it's intri- it's intriguing because, you know, like I say, this Brock Lesnar example really showed that they couldn't do it worldwide. Other people have brought up other states like California that have done a very good job of, of kind of knocking down non-compete clauses. Um, and in fact, most companies use basically warning letters. They don't really sue each other over non-compete. They just kind of send an angry letter to somebody else saying you shouldn't do this. Uh, I've received one before. I don't know about you. About what? Oh, I worked for a um, a medical company and I went to go work for a consulting firm and the consulting firm had poached a few people from that company. And so they basically got an angry letter saying you have to stop hiring employees from us. Oh. Uh, and again, it wasn't that there was actually a, you know, it was an implied legal threat more than it was an actual, you know, we are suing you in this. Yeah. But it was basically saying we, we, we let you go, but you can't go around and just hire employees from us uh, willy nilly. Hmm. So, it, so it was interesting. So, so here's my, my legal fantasy booking. Like what's stopping like Daniel Bryan or Neville from suing the WWE and saying I'm being misclassified as an independent contractor when I'm an employee? What's stopping Daniel Bryan is probably, A, all the contracts that he signed and signed again and again and again where they'd bring up all this long history and say, well, weren't you informed? Didn't you understand what you're doing? And B, the fact that his wife is on Total Bellas and all the other money that's associated with that. Yeah. Uh, for Neville, I would probably just say it's the legal costs, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, you're looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars of legal costs to fight this mm-hmm. unless you get a pro bono loaner, lawyer or you get someone who's going to go on contingency. Yeah. And uh, in the past, it has not worked out so well. Connecticut has not been very friendly because uh, the laws of what, what it's being determined by is usually Connecticut law. And Connecticut law has not been friendly uh, to the people. What we are waiting for, though, is you know the person who says, I have standing, I have uh, time, and I can do it. Because what's happened again and again is people have tried to sue, but they've sued so far after the time that they were working for the company that they haven't been able to have standing. So when Raven, Mike Sanders, Canyon sued, they didn't have standing because it was too long ago. It's, it's when, what, th- the statute of limitations is three years, I think you said? I think that's what it is. It's either two years or three years, and it, it would be – and and there's even questions about, you know, is that from the termination of the contract or the signing date of the contract, um, which I'm not sure about, which, which, again, I would imagine is from the date that you last worked for them. Yeah, because otherwise uh, and, just, just sign everybody to contracts that are longer than three years and then they're, they're – Yeah, they're no, stuck. it's got to be <laughs> – it's got to be that. And then the other thing that we, we haven't talked about at all, but there was this clause in there that basically said we reserve the right to renew your time on the contract if you are injured during it and we are paying you the downside guarantee. We can basically count that time and append it to the end of your contract. So in theory, if you're on contract for three years and on day one you get injured and they start paying you, they can basically say it's a six-year contract now because we can count all the time that we paid you on your original contract that was injury time and append it on kind of like you know overtime in soccer. And so Ray Mysterio supposedly was in that situation where he was basically – they were saying, well, even though your time of the contract's up, because we paid you injury time for so long, we're going to append that on. And so I think that was part of the reason they're going back and forth with the lawyers. Yep. So uh, it, the, the next question is – so was Berrios lying? Was Berrios confused? Or was Berrios um, uh, just kind of misstating things in a way that either he did not understand or that he was just trying to overlook? On on the bad side, you could look at this and say, wait a second, are you saying that you don't have your unique talent all locked up? I mean, you know, uh, when American Gods goes and films a season and then season two, they don't have all their stars locked up and the stars say, I don't want to do the show anymore. 
uh, that that's detrimental to the filming of a show. Like, so what's the but, purpose of a contract if I don't have you committed for a certain amount of time? Yeah, what's preventing John Cena from going and being a big star somewhere else? And and so the reality is, well, what's preventing them is the fact that no, they can't just usually terminate a contract. Though we we've seen examples where you know WWE is giving guys a way out, like right Alberto Del Rio. Uh, got into a physical altercation with someone. <laughs> so there, the, what, what, what is evidence too is that if you breach your contract in such a way that they don't want you, that's a way to get out. And so there's even been rumors that, you know, some people have tried to get a wellness violation or tried to get a, a, a talent violation or, you know, intentionally been late to work or, or showed up well, in such a way that they can get fired. John, do you remember what the deal was with Cody? Like Cody got an early release, right? Supposedly, I think what it would be is is a lot of times they also offer guys, you know, kind of contract extensions, you know, like sign this and you're going to add two two year two more years to your contract. Mm -hmm. And I think in some cases, guys just say, nope, I'm not going to sign it. Let's just go to the extent. Let's go to the end of my natural contract. Yeah. And at a certain point, you wouldn't be surprised if they're going to say, OK, well, your contract's got one month left on it. Uh, can we both just agree that instead of putting you on the road for a month, you're released, you're done. And for the next 90 days here, we'll just call it a deal. Or, hey, you want out so bad, you, you agree that you're going to take less than 90 days. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- there is options there. Uh, you know, it's really tough for us to get in the mindset of people because we only ever hear one side of the story. So Jimmy Jacobs, Austin Aries, Neville, we hear these rumors that leak out about how they feel about things. And then later we hear contradictory stories from them. You know, were they angry about their WrestleMania pay or were they just not being used in a way that they wanted? Or did they just get fired because they weren't, you know, popular? It's hard sometimes for us to, to know for sure. So a lot of this is innuendo and rumor. Um, as far as we can tell, Daniel Bryan wants out. Yeah. It's, it's so like, what is it? Do you think it's possible like George Barrios just doesn't know what the terms of talent contracts are? It is possible. It is. It's, he's not a talent guy. He doesn't work in the talent division. He does not sign contracts with independent contractors. He is a, I think, a CPA or a CFA. He is someone who's worked on the television negotiation. So he's certainly seen those very complex contracts, but he's not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm sure it sounds good to say, you know, you're an independent contractor. We've completely used the words independent contractor a thousand times. If I imply in some way that you're not an independent contractor, that's going to sound like a giant violation because these are not employees. So I'm guessing a lot of it comes from the fact that he's trying to use what would be normally a definition for independent contractor and ostensibly is the definition, even though we know in practice there's no example of that being that way. Yeah. I think I think we, the point you said to me when I when I brought this up to you the first time was, you know, WWE's okay with it if you want to go and be a firefighter, but if you want to do anything that's like pro wrestling or MMA, no way. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Ted DiBiase got out of his contract, and I think that's what he ended up going to do. Yeah. And um, I, I do think there's a big difference between if you're Damian Sandow and you're asking for out, or even Cody Rhodes as Stardust asking for an out. Versus if you're Rey Mysterio or if you're a Batista or someone like that, that might, you know, be such a high profile person that they might say, nope, you know what? I paid a lot of money to get you and I'm not going to just let you go somewhere else, especially to Japan and go do something. And uh, Daniel Bryan, you know, he's he's the perfect example of them, of somebody who is stuck between what what he wants to do and what they don't want him to do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So. 
Go ahead. Yeah, you, you wrote a, wrote this great article. You can go to Fightful.com. Check out Brandon Howard. It's WWE Executive Talks Wrestling Audience Talent Contracts TV Rights WWE Network. Uh, what other things were, were kind of interesting in this discussion you had um, from George's George from, Burgers? Being from, from the Needham Conference, too, there was a point where, again, I think somebody was asking if wrestling was real or, or something approximately that, that question. He said it's all real, but we just happen to know the outcome, but it's all real. But he, he he gave this explanation of like I think like his his perception of what the WWE audience is, and I thought it was pretty smart. I mean, we, we we're, we're we're killing him here for not uh, not I don't know not being truthful about what the reality of talent contracts really are. But I I see at least some uh, improvement in in the philosophy here or the understanding at least from him of what the wrestling audience is, which I've never heard from him before, where he, he says things like, you know, we're this combination of sports, rock concert, soap opera, and a little bit of kabuki theater. Obviously, we do reality series, too. And he says, so different people enjoy different parts of it. And uh, depending on who you ask, they probably want it to be more of the stuff they like. So we're always having to balance that. Because he says earlier that there's all these different types of fans. You know, some people can wax poetic on the technical abilities of different wrestlers. That's one type of fan. And there are others who are more into enjoying the grandeur and the spectacle and the music and the lights. So, I mean, kind of talking about, I guess, you know, the hardcore fans versus the more casual fans or, or the people who have a certain taste. They want match quality. They want great storylines or great promos. And there's people who more casually maybe attend or watch WB events. And and I think anybody who spends a lot of time trying to find information about WWE online would would agree with that assessment that, you know, you're going to get bombarded with articles about, you know, match quality and this and that. And then at the same time, you're sitting there and you're seeing the attendance trends and you're seeing the big events and you're saying, well, this doesn't seem to be reflective of the people that I'm looking at in the analytics department, what they're telling me. And I, I joked that, oh, George Barrios must be a, a reader of Voices of Wrestling where, where people often, you know, do these fantastic uh, analyses and, you know, writings on you know, what's going on with this character and, and whatever promotion, whether it's WWE or New Japan or whatever it might be. But, uh, and that seems a little bit reflective, too, of WWE's, well, we talked about this last week, and it's mentioned in this article, too, that uh, WWE was shocked to learn that their subscribers actually wanted more in-ring content. So I think it's maybe that's a, a tipping point for them from being just these hardcore fans being this restless vocal minority to being all right. Maybe this is a, a section of our of our audience that we should respect enough to, to realize we can get more money out of these people by, as he would say, super serving them. And and you could also flip it around and say it's a shock to them because we discovered they did not want the peripheral content oh, that was expensive that. to us. They didn't want well, Legends House and watch reruns of Total Divas. Amazing. And the cartoons, yeah. And so I think there's that element too. There In the investor deck here, there's a slide that makes some of his statements make so much more sense to me. And it's a great example of the difference between hearing them speak and then seeing the materials that are on screen with the disclaimers. And so one of them is called Every Day Becoming More Digital Direct-to-Consumer. It says digital revenue as a percent of total dollars. And it says in 2010, 10% of our revenue was digital. And in 2017, TTM, which is a trailing 10, 12 months, so uh, Q4 of 2016 through Q3 of 2017, um, is 35%. So they went from 10 to 35%. They're calling it a 30% CAGR. And it's saying 10% digital to 35% digital. And down on the bottom, there's a little disclaimer. It says digital revenue includes categories such as the WWE Network, WWE Shop, digital media, and various revenue lines within licensing and brand new merchandise. Non-digital revenue reflects the remainder of company revenues. 
And that is really telling because what they're what they're really saying with that is today I can go and look and say, okay, WWE Network, that's digital. WWE Shop, that's digital. Digital media, social media, sure, that's digital. I'm surprised WWE.com's not on there, but I'm guessing that's part of what he's calling digital media. But it also means that all of the business in 2010 that was pay-per-view, so $80 million of business, that was not considered digital. Now that that's part of the network, that's considered digital. So really when he says we're going from 10% to 35%, if you took that that pay-per-view segment and added that on to what 2010's number is, you're at 25%. And you've gone from 25% to 35%. So – you, you could argue some of this is just a channel shift where you've taken $80 million of revenue and turned it into whatever it is, $120 million or, or however many millions it is for um, today for WWE Network. But a large portion of that is just the fact that you've decided to basically sell your pay-per-views online rather than sell them direct uh, through, a, through another service. And yeah, that, that does make it more digital. But I would argue it's a little bit – there's a much different story if I'm saying I move from 25% to 35% in seven years than if I say I move from 10 to 35%. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it, it, it's probably something that makes more sense to, I don't know, an, an average, you know, the, the typical business mind or the typical sort of person that he's doing these pitches to. Yeah, it, it just was more that it, it was bugging me for so long that he kept saying our digital is exploding, our digital is exploding, and I kept thinking – no, it's 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 not. You know, digital media is a tiny portion of your entire money. Right. Well, how can you keep saying that? And what I realize now is that what he's actually trying to say is digital media, as defined by WWE Network plus WWE Shop plus plus quote licensing and venue merchandise. Which again, why would venue merchandise be part of your digital media? Can you explain that to me at all? No, I think you, you speculated that maybe that they were going to do something with their app where you could order merchandise in your seat at an event and then they would deliver it to you. But did they ever do that? I don't know. No, well, the I've only never other, heard of it. No. The only other thing I can think of is if somehow the VR at the live event, like you know, we're, we're offering you a VR look at the live event. If you can download it or do this or do that, maybe that would be involved. But uh, I, I don't understand why venue merchandise would involve any digital media. And same with direct-to-consumer. Um, they define direct-to-consumer as being WWE Network, WWE Shop.com, and various lines within live events and venue merchandise. And this is on the investor presentation? Yeah, it's on, on slide number 14. Okay. Um, and so this is just another weird one to me where, I again, is WWE.com revenue not part of here. digital media? I, I don't understand. So it, it's just one of these weird ones where it makes more sense that you're trying to say 35% of your revenue is now digital. And when they say that, we oftentimes conflate that with social media. But what he's really trying to get at is YouTube revenue plus all my WWE network revenue plus my WWE shop revenue, which, again, you're oh. buying it online, but it's physical media. So you, well, you could argue, is that digital um, you're looking at the footnote here, right? This is, yeah. this is super interesting stuff. We're looking at footnotes on PowerPoint slides. But it says direct-to-consumer revenue sources include various categories such as W Network, W Shop, and various revenue lines within live events and venue merch. Oh, it does say that about, about digital too. Yeah. Digital so that's revenue why... sources include categories such as W Network, W Shop, digital media, and various revenue. Wow, yeah, venue merch. Yeah, that makes yeah. no sense. Okay. Yeah, and same with, with WWE Shop where you could argue, okay, you're buying it online, but is that digital revenue or is that just, you know, you're, it's an e-commerce platform? An e-commerce platform, you know, at that point, can I start counting tickets as as digital revenue because you bought them online? Right. So I imagine it has some other definition where they're saying a digital revenue stream is a revenue stream that is primarily 
you know, service through the web and allows us to know the consumer that bought it in the end. Right. It's, and, it's various revenue lines within. So there, yeah, yeah there must be some. So that, that's why, that they think again, is, yeah, so that's why digital. I'm struggling with it. Um, the other thing that was interesting in this presentation is they kind of talked about their three ecosystems. They talk about their pay TV, their direct to consumer and their ad supported digital and social area. And for the pay TV thing, they, they break it down into three pieces. One is in ring weekly programs. Raw Smackdown makes total sense. Next one is reality. That's total Bellas. That's total divas. That's things of that nature. Then they have a third one called documentary documentary. And I thought that was really yeah, documentary doc, documentary. And I thought that was really weird. And then they finally defined what they meant by that. And they, they basically meant that's the 30 for 30, like on Ric Flair or the HBO sports thing. That's going to be on Andre the giant. So that was intriguing to me that, you know, they're kind of considering that a whole pillar when, you know, I can at best come up with two examples in the last seven years that, that kind of fall under that. Maybe the XFL documentary. Yeah. Um, so is but, that telling us that they, when they do the, this 30 for 30, for example, with Ric Flair, they're going to do the Andre the Giant documentary with HBO Sports, that that those – that ESPN and HBO are paying WWE for I, wh- whatever, their cooperation or the, the video rights? It's possible it's a co-production um, of some sort. But yeah, it's it's intriguing because of that because it, it also kind of says that, that it's not aiming for that as part of your um, – as much on the digital platform. Now, they do say the digital platform has three areas, which is pay-per-views, in-ring programs, so 205 Live, UK Championship, and then what they call document- documentaries and lifestyle, which was swerved in WWE 24 and Ride Along. Mm-hmm. So it, it's intriguing to me that you know they, they are kind of implying that they have documentary stuff there, but really a d- very different kind of documentary stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they basically said their ad-supported digital – Shows are things like in-ring highlights, like on YouTube, and then uh, short-form originals like Superstar Inc. and Bella's – the Bella Twins YouTube channel, I guess, is what they mean. So yeah. it just uh, – I would I would have probably put up, up, down, down or something like that more you know, relevant. But Yeah, well, I, uh, think, that, I think the Bellas have their own channel, which, which I think does a lot of views. Um, yep. I'm not so, sure about Superstar Inc., though. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I just thought it was an interesting you know, little – thing uh the only other slide that i was kind of picking apart was there's a slide on here about the number of of users and the kager going along with the users on the the web so let me see if i can find that um page 24 right nope yes yes that one the average page subscribers and it's like well we've had a 33 percent kager on our our wwe network well that's because in year one they had 666 on average and in year two they had 1138 if you start looking at at year two through year four, which is eleven thirty eight up to fifteen thirty, that Kager drops to like ten percent. Right. So there's a big difference between being able to say I'm doing a thirty three percent Kager, and being able to say yeah we we really grow at ten percent a year. One year we doubled, and then every other year since then we've been growing at like ten percent, right. which is a lot more accurate to say where's it going to be in the future? It's nowhere near thirty three percent. It's going to be. 10% or 8% or 7% right. if they're at a good rate. Yeah, and I think that we in, in BTIG expect like single-digit percent growth. Hey, Brandon, you know, hair loss isn't just your dad's problem. It happens earlier in life than one expects. By 35, two out of three men will start losing their hair. I just turned 37. I know this fear. But the good news is hair loss is actually easy to prevent if you get started early. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Keeps. It's a new company and it offers a simple, clinically proven, and affordable way to stop hair loss. With Keeps, it's easier than ever for guys like us to keep our hair. 
Yeah, Chris, and I'm, I'm only 32, and sometimes when I look in the mirror, I look at my hairline, and I really wonder if, if I'm receding. Yeah. The good news is Keeps is the easiest way for us to keep our hair. And Keeps offers the only two FDA-approved hair loss products clinically proven to keep the hair you have. You can sign up in less than five minutes. It's entirely online. You pay only 10 to $35 a month, and that comes out to about $1 a day on average. And this is about half of what you would pay at a pharmacy. Yeah, it's so easy to get started with Keeps. All you do is you answer a few questions, you snap a few photos at the top of your head. A licensed doctor will remotely view your information and will give you the right prescription, all without you ever having to leave your couch, your bed, your chair, or just the standing desk that you're at right now. You'll get a two, within two to three days, you'll get a three-month supply of your treatment, and it will arrive perfectly packaged at your door in a discreet package. That's right. You can stop hair loss today the easy way with Keeps, offering customized treatment plans with only FDA-approved hair loss products for about $1 a day, all from the comfort of your couch. So if you want to receive the first month of your treatment for free, we've got a deal for you. Go to keeps.com slash W-E. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash W-E. That's our promo code, and that will get you a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash W-E from WrestleNomics Radio. Hair today, hair tomorrow. Keeps. Talking about digital media, the Mix Match Challenge did premiere this week on Facebook as part of the Facebook Watch app. Uh, how many viewers did they get? They peaked at 135,000. And uh, if you go to the Mix Match Challenge video on Facebook itself and you look at it, it says there were, you know, I don't know, this one says 1.8. Earlier it said 1.9 million views. So what does that mean? I, don't know, I, I watched it live and... Uh, it, it, it did. I did see a peak at about one hundred thirty-five, one hundred thirty-six thousand, uh, which was, I think, around the middle of the match. This is this is a match between Sasha, where Sasha Banks teams with Finn Balor against Shinsuke Nakamura, and Natalia, um, which was a fun match. But uh, so this one point eight or one point nine million views. It's like it, it could be like a three second view, maybe, maybe even less than that. I mean, that's what a Facebook video view is defined as, I believe. So. Who knows how many people actually watched the whole thing or watched a majority of it, but at, at least uh, 130,000 people were watching it as it happened, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, and what's interesting, if you go to YouTube and type in, like, Mix Match Challenge WWE, you'll see that they're doing, like, you know, uh, teams react to week one, and, and here's the bracket reveal, and oh my gosh, the uh, the mics were live, can you believe it? You can you can hear this. And those, you know, like, uh, the Mix Match Challenge teams react to week one on YouTube already has 390,000 views after two days. You, you so, can't watch the match itself. On, no, on no. That, that's what I was going to check to see to make sure that they're making okay. this platform specific. But just the fact that it, it speaks a lot to how low that reach is for Facebook, that you know, they can do other short form content and get hundreds of thousands of views. This Facebook watch thing is is pretty uh small reach, you know, two million people. That's less than or watching raw in a given week. And then on top of that, when you look at um you had a good article here you clicked from Business Insider. And it, it kind of just talks about some of the shows that have been big shows for them, you know, Returning the Favor, Ball in the Family, Loosely, Exactly Nicole, and Strangers. And some of these shows had literally 9, 13, 26, 30 million people watching, supposedly, on Facebook Watch. Yeah. So, so by somebody, contrast, that's nothing. Somebody passed that this link from Business Insider along to me on Twitter, basically pointing out that uh, from episode one to episode two, the drop-off for previous shows that facebook watches put on the drop off from episode one to episode two is 
pretty extreme. Yeah, he goes from like uh, 26 million episode one. Episode two looks like it's barely a million people uh, for one of the examples there. That was the ball in the family about LeVar Ball's family. Um, So, yeah, it just suggests that like next week, I guess they'll be doing this again Tuesday, right? We would should expect, uh, I don't know, like uh, 10% of the of the audience that that uh, it got the week before. Or I'm, I'm not sure that or that, they, yeah. they are already in week two mode is that they never got that bump. And yeah. what they have now is what they're going to get. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to be different in the case of a WWE because the there's that flagship programming underneath it that's going to promote it. So I, I am shocked, though, um, in the sense that I think that's not a good number for WWE. I'm, I'm going to I really thought they would get a million. No problem watching live or within, you know, a day. And the fact they're only at two million now and says to me that it's not content that's you know it, it it says a lot to me about the the viability of trying to move something to that kind of platform and just how uh it this fa- this is facebook putting its feet in the youtube p- pool and trying to pretend they're a big player and instead you know if you look at that facebook watch there it's about streaming lavar ball's son's games in croatia or wherever they are right now um it, it's it's just it's all over the place, and I think it's going to be seen as something where Facebook threw a bunch of money at it and did not really know what they were doing and didn't know what they were hiring. And and uh, it's kind of the difference between being a Hulu and being an Amazon or or Netflix or or any of the fifth tier stuff where you're just you're trying to emulate what other people are doing and thinking it's going to work. So I'm I'm very intrigued to see how that's going to turn out. So uh, they, they did this on Tuesday, and and uh, the, did they do 205 Live after this? Yes. Yeah, so 205 Live became a 30-minute show is how they, they did it. And it and just so, aired later than usual on the WWE Network? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, and by the way, they, the, the WWE uh, house shows for 205 Live happened this weekend, and we have, we're not prepared for this at all, but uh, we don't know anything about the attendance, do we? At least one of the shows was canceled, right? Right. The Friday show was canceled. The Saturday show has happened already, and the Sunday show must be tonight. But anyway, did, we'll, did we'll the talk Saturday show actually happen, though? I thought they canceled the whole deal. I don't know. We'll we'll figure out and talk about it next week, I guess. Well, let's let me just go to Cage Match real quick. Let's see if uh, anything shows up here. Go to promotions. Go to WWE, and go to results. Oh, I'm finding a report here, a correspondent at the first ever non televised WWE 205 live show. Lowell, Massachusetts estimates 800 fans in the building. Yep, yep. So I, I got a that um, WWE 205 house show. Lowell, Atami beat Gallagher. Grand Metalik and Kalisto beat Gulak and TJP. Matt Hardy beat Bray Wyatt, so they did not headline. Uh, Tazawa beat Davari. Mustafa Ali beat Tony Nice. And WWE Cruiserweight title match was the main event with special guest referee Nia Jax. Uh, so they could continue the angle with Enzo Amore uh, retaining over Cedric Alexander. So mm-hmm. that that was apparently the 205 live show that they so did on 20th. 800 or so. What do you think of that number? I think that's that's an NXT level number, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, I would call that bad because um, that that's I, I thought they 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 should be shooting for a thousand to twelve hundred minimum. I think once you break that one thousand limit. Uh, you're really pushing the limits of what you're getting from your shows. And at that point, if you can't string them economically together to make it make sense, then that's that's really tough. 
I don't think it's low enough that they're losing money on it necessarily if they can get two shows out of it. But I don't think it's good for their overall number. And it also creates a subcategory of attendance. And we're going to start seeing them do some kind of uh, uh, gymnastics around their numbers to try to count what is a quote unquote main brand show or not. So pay close attention to the Q1 filing to see if they do what they did with ECW, which is they tried to basically discredit ECW at one point so they didn't have to include those house show numbers in their averages. That's right. When the Q1 report comes out probably in May sometime, we'll we'll probably get a little note in the 10Q about not just NXT now, but 205 Live. Well, I think they might count it as like all developmental or non-Raw SmackDown branded shows or something. Yeah, they just might average. just bucket them in together. Yeah, yeah, I doubt we'll break them out individually because it's not like they break out WWE network tapings really specifically, even though you could argue those are also kind of non-core programming. You know, when they do a WWE UK taping is very different attendance, you know, a couple thousand people sometimes oh, yeah, compared to actual and so is that NXT? Is that not NXT? You know, they, they, they get really loose with those definitions sometimes. Yeah, I wonder if they just never do another house show weekend again for 205 Live. They, maybe they'll just ignore it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> pretend, it, pretend it was a uh, fan appreciation night. Yeah. They'll just uh, pretend it never happened. Um, Impact uh, went to Twitch and put on their barbed wire mayhem match, uh, basically saying TV won't let us air this, so come and watch it on Twitch. Uh, we had speculated last week this was happening. Conan kind of spilled the beans on Twitter. Um, what do you think about this idea of basically saying, hey, you're a fan of us. Come to this other forum and watch us on this instead of, uh, you know, on our, our core platform. I guess if you have something that you're not going to put on on the regular TV show, that's fine. Um, the question is, like, well, how valuable is that? broadcast on twitch you know what, what are you getting out of that uh, that business deal or the ad revenue share whatever it is it doesn't sound like it's very much it's a you know and you consider the viewership is I don't, well, we could probably look it up but uh, I, don't, I don't know that the viewership is huge for that so like how much but, ad but revenue it, is there to get but it's also high enough that you know they bothered to put it on the ring apron so this isn't like this is a you know after the fact oh my gosh they're not gonna let us show it we better put it on twitch uh-huh. this is clearly something you're negotiating and you're planning ahead of time 2,000 views for the Barbed Wire Massacre 3 between hmm. LAX and OVE. And, and it's intriguing to me, too, because I do think uh, at least you're going to a platform that's going to work. So it's one thing if you're going to go to YouTube or going to go to Twitch. It's another thing if you're saying, I want you to download this app. I want you to log into this service. I want you to create an account. I want you to go to the Eric Bischoff Wrestling Academy website. And, you know, you know, it's one thing if you're trying to circumvent the entire ecosystem that you're playing in and go to it versus if you're just trying to at least latch on to something else. And I think at this point, arguably, uh, you have YouTube and then it's. I guess you know Facebook Watch is bigger, but uh, honestly, in terms of where, where are the companies going, Twitch is number two, right? For live streaming, um, monetization of your your programming, there's a lot more wrestling content that's being put through Twitch now than ever yeah. before. Yeah, as far as I know, um, I don't. I don't think. I think Daily Motion does monetization, but I don't. Nobody, nobody in wrestling is getting officially involved with Daily Motion. But yeah, I, I, not, I, not unless you're looking for New Japan uh, pirated content. Exactly. Uh, but I, I wonder if like is is Facebook ever going to end up uh, doing doing ad revenue share with with users, or if they're just going to stick to this? You know, they're going to pick and choose what content they put and and pay people some sort of licensing fee. Well, you know what's coming up on the the patron only chat 
uh, is you, me, and and Lavi talk about Ring of Honor and about what are they doing with their library and how are they trying to you know monopolize that on the different platforms. And so anyone who goes to patreon.com slash russellnomics can sign up right. and hear that exclusive discussion that we have on that very topic there, kind of contrasting how Ring of Honor through Sinclair's lens has decided to kind of deal with their content and also with their decision to roll out very similar content on different platforms rather than customizing it. And you can become a WrestleNomics patron for how much again? It's it's very cheap. Uh, you know, for five dollars a month, you're going to have full access to all the audio, to all the notes that we're doing, and everything else. That's great. And you get access to that Ring of Honor talk that we had with Lavi just now. Yep. And last week we had a whole bunch of uh, exclusive in- information where we went through all the executive talk in great detail. So uh, really good content there, plus some other interviews and things that we've done in the past. And the notes and the links from every week, which includes Brandon's multicolor graphs that are always, you know, a big hit for everybody. Um, I know one of our, our listeners, Nick here, was was curious about my Excel skills and my my proficiency. And uh, I am I am renowned for my lack of mouse use when it comes to really? uh, Excel. Yes, you I'm don't actually use very, the mouse. Uh, I'm I'm very good without the mouse, with the <sighs> exception of occasionally I need a menu and I have not learned the keyboard shortcut. In under Excel 2010, so to make a pivot table, I have to actually click the word insert to you know, uh, but you know I know Control Shift L is going to be filters, and I you know um, Alt A S S is going to get you to the sort screen, and you know things like that. I use a lot of right clicks just to get to the right click menu. So if I could figure out how to do that on my keyboard easier, I'd be better because I, I, a lot of times I just need the right click and then do S V, so I can do you know paste special as values. And, you know, you hold control and hit page up and page down and go through between the tabs and and so forth. So I, I do a lot of Excel keyboard shortcuts, which impress people when they see it for the first time. Uh, later, when they realize how inefficient I am with everything else I'm doing when I'm going so fast, then they get less impressed. But that's OK. But, yeah, no, it, it sounds it sounds like you're on an, another level. I love I, I find that if I if I have to use the mouse to do it. And there's a keyboard shortcut. I will try and memorize that keyboard shortcut. The problem is there is occasionally things where they do not have keyboard shortcuts that are at least widely programmed and so i don't know them as well so you know like freeze planes or or you know hitting the plus or minus signs when you're doing expand columns uh that can sometimes be a little bit more cumbersome and or easier to do on your your keyboard plus i have to occasionally actually explain to salespeople how to use their pivots so then at that point i have to teach them how to do it with the mouse i can't just say all you have to do is right click and then hit e then c then c you know, doesn't go well. I'm still not able to make any sense of a pivot table. They just, I just look at them and I'm like, what is this maze that I'm looking at here? I still don't understand. You have to explain it to me one day. Um, I've been doing my own little spreadsheet work here, uh, where I took all 570 events that I could find for WWE last year. And this combines all the TV tapings and all this stuff where it's just 570 times they went to different places. And I tried to find all the attendance numbers I could from the observer. So what I have not yet done is correlated this to the Q1, Q2, Q3 results that they gave us for attendance numbers. But for the most part, it's in generally in line with uh, the information. And of course, the data you get from WWE is at best all events, all events international, all events international minus WrestleMania or domestic minus WrestleMania. Like you don't really get much more detail than that except for some NXT data. So 
getting individual towns and an estimate of their attendance is is still probably better than just taking those giant numbers and trying to apply them. But I counted 570 events, 421 house shows. That's 137 for SmackDown, 120 for Raw, and 164 for NXT. I'm not 100% sure why there's 17 more SmackDown events for the year. I don't know if that's because some of them are, are European things where it's not really just one brand or if some of that just comes from the Monday nights that they're running so often. Um, 118 television tapings, that's 52 um, Raw, 52 SmackDown, one tribute to the troops and 13 NXT tapings, 16 pay-per-views, 6 Raw, 6 SmackDown, 4 Raw and SmackDown, 16 network specials with 5 NXT takeovers, 4 WWE UK tapings, 2 May Young Classic tapings, uh, not counting, of course, the May Young Classic finals that were held after SmackDown, so that would have been combined, and then 4 Access events. Mm -hmm. So, what did I find? Well, I found that TV tapings averaged about 7,600 people a show, and that was 8,800 for Raw and 6,500 for SmackDown. So really big difference on television uh, attendances for the two. And I'd say we've heard that story throughout the year, that, that SmackDown TV started to get pretty weak there as the year went on. Um, so that that's in line at least with other things I've heard. Now, I, I found Raw house shows – Averaged 4,900 people a show, and SmackDown averaged 4,600 a show. That's including all the countries of the world. Now, if you just want to look at U.S. and Canada, what I call domestic, Raw House shows averaged 4,400 a show, and SmackDown averaged 3,800 a show, which at first you'd say, oh my gosh, Raw's killing them by 600 people a show. Well, why is that? Well, that's because you're including Monday SmackDown House shows. Monday SmackDown House shows average about 3,000 people a show. So if you exclude that, and then you say, okay, what is Raw versus SmackDown U.S. domestic? not including Monday. So it's basically weekend shows. Well, you end up finding that it's 4,300 for SmackDown versus 4,400 for Raw. So we're within 100 of each other. So what was interesting to me is in the end, there really was no difference between a Raw and SmackDown house show on the total year basis. I do think there's a quarterly story here that's going to be very different, but it does say to me that there was actually no change over the year. On average, they were the same. But on a quarterly basis, I will say they are different. And specifically, I found that in Q1, here's here's the quarter one, two, three, four for um, Raw in the U.S. and Canada house shows. So Q1, 4150. Q2, 4200. Q3, 4100. Q4, 5100. So big, big jump in Q4. Otherwise, they would have been sitting around 4200 for the year. And that Q4 has got the holiday tour, which it always does really well. Yes, and that's one of the main reasons it's so high. Uh, SmackDown, you had – this does not include Mondays. So this is what I would consider a little bit more of a like-to-like. -like. Yeah. So 5100 in Q1, 3700 in Q2, 3600 in Q3, 4600 in Q4. So you see a bump again for them in Q4 with the holiday tour. Um, in this case, almost a thousand more, which is about equal to what Raw got, about a thousand more. But you also notice in Q1, they were beating Raw, 5,100 to 4,100. How in the world were they beating Raw? Well, John Cena. When John Cena was on those, those, those uh, non-Monday house shows, he averaged 5,350 per show, or 4,800, even if you want to throw in Mondays. The 46 house shows that didn't have Cena... That was 3850 or 3400 if you want to include Mondays. So a big, big difference there of, of almost, you know, 1400 people um, in terms of what was seen as impact. Three quarters of Cena's SmackDown house shows were in the first quarter of the year. So Q1 for SmackDown was really good. 
and the rest of the year when he left, suddenly it fell. So you could also say what's going to happen at the same time is Cena left. Who had the rise? Well, Jinder Mahal had a rise at that time. So when you go through this whole process and you start running the numbers, what you're going to start to say is, oh, my God, Jinder Mahal killed these shows. If you're looking at main eventers, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, you could argue it the other way around and say John Cena helped these shows. And when John Cena left, the shows were no longer helped. But it's going to punish people that are not there it's going to help the people that come only sequentially, you know, holiday tour in the beginning of the year, John Cena. It's going to hurt the people that were there for the entire year, uh, Roman Reigns to a degree or uh, Dean Ambrose or people like that because they're going to show up as not being factors at all because they're factored into the whole year. I did run a regression and um, the R squared on this is like 25 percent. So it's not a high R squared, but I was able to get really low P values. Um, meaning that you could argue they were statistically relevant. And so what I did for this is I, I looked at both who headlined the most shows and then I looked at how which people were on those shows and then you know ran a regression that basically said the variables are, are you one of these wrestlers? Is it a Monday? Those were my variables. Uh-huh. And what I, what I found in the end was that there was a couple wrestlers that had a impact on um, positively on the business. So the people that had a positive impact on the business were – I want to make sure I find my right little conclusion here. Um, there was three people that had a conclusive positive impact on the business. They were Brock Lesnar, John Cena, and Samoa Joe. And the reason I bring this up is because Brock Lesnar did work many house shows last year. He worked, I think, um, was it eight house shows for a total of 14 events? That sounds – about right. Yeah, he did a handful. I I think he did eight house shows that ran for 14 total events. And in that, um, I found that when Brock Lesnar was on a house show, he uh, uh, averaged 6,900 people. And when he wasn't, he only averaged 4,200 people. So you, you could say that those those ones were helped a lot by having Brock there. Now, is he the only reason that those shows were doing well? No, probably not. And there are some cases even where the show didn't do well because there's snow and other things going on. But in general, Brock Lesnar was a huge positive impact. Next guy was John Cena. John Cena had a big positive impact. And then the last guy was not a guy I expected to see at all, but is the reason I asked you earlier during the shopping trends, which was Samoa Joe. Mm-hmm. I found that Samoa Joe had an impact of, of several hundred people, possibly even over a thousand people on house shows. Now, this could be timing about what shows was Joe on, what shows was Joe not on. But that was really interesting to me that it appeared that Joe was a big deal. Um, you had people that what I would call non-conclusive. So non-conclusive was Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, Bray Wyatt, Braun Strowman, AJ Styles, Kevin Owens, The Miz. These are people who you could argue maybe they had either no impact or a positive impact, but their p-values were off the charts, meaning I can't say statistically that this is a relevant thing. Braun Strowman's big draw on YouTube for destroying things, but no big evidence yet that he makes a difference at house shows, huh? Not necessarily, yeah. And then the last one is who had a negative impact? Well, there's three people or three things that had a negative impact on shows statistically. And number one was Dean Ambrose. Number two was Jinder Mahal. Number three was running a show on a Monday. The worst thing that could happen is running a show on a Monday. You're going to lose like 1,400 people from that. Number two is having Jinder Mahal. Now, do I think this means Jinder Mahal is not a draw? I don't know if that's really the right conclusion. My conclusion would be Jinder Mahal took over after uh, uh, John Cena was there. 
And so even though Jinder Mahal worked close to the most events for the year, he he was an, he had lower SmackDown shows, especially when he was there. And then when John Cena was not there, the shows were low. So in some ways, I think Jinder is just the anti-Cena that he he was the guy that was still there after Cena left. So I do think it might be causing a false positive. And then Dean Ambrose uh, is just showing that when, again, a guy who was an Iron Man, who was on a lot of different shows, and uh, it looks like he was kind of that X factor that wasn't necessarily a positive impact. Uh, we don't see any evidence that he was drawing bigger crowds because he was there. And so could it just be that he's the anti-Brock Lesnar or the, he's the anti-Samoa Joe? Maybe. But uh, I, to me, it's it's interesting to say that, you know, I think there's a strong case to say John Cena and Brock Lesnar are big draws. I think there's a strong case to say Samoa Joe might be a case for a draw. And so, hey, if you're fantasy booking, I would move Samoa Joe to SmackDown, make him feud with the champion, have some AJ Samoa matches. And I think that'd be huge. Yeah. That's that's my take on things is that, that would be very good to me. It, um, and I think it. Yeah, so so that's interesting to me. Dean is hurt now. Ginger's lost the title, and they're going to continue running shows on Monday. So, you know, I don't think a lot is going to change, except for Mondays are going to continue to be a negative draw next year. And, and so to kind of go over what you just said, I sh- the reason why I shouldn't necessarily start tweeting, Ginger Mahal is not a draw, there's evidence now, or, or Dean Ambrose for that matter, is so Dean Ambrose and Ginger Mahal are both on SmackDown, right? Is Dean Ambrose? Uh, no, Dean Ambrose, Dean Ambrose no, on no, Raw. On Raw. <laughs> it would help if I watched W Product. He switched. He did switched. my three-hour podcast on wrestling. Was he on? Was he on? Um, SmackDown he was on for any SmackDown part of the year? Point. Was yeah, he on uh, last year he was, but uh, but not I for any, any part of 2017. When did he move? When did he switch? Uh, you're, you're challenging Whenever me. Whenever they here. did the um, the shakeup, right? The superstar shakeup. <laughs> We're gonna have to like look at Dean Ambrose's uh, Wikipedia. Oh, God. Here we go. Um, he moved to Raw as a result of the super brand, the super star shakeup on April 4th and uh, resumed his rivalry. So I think that was this year he moved. Okay. So most of the year he was on Raw. All right. But yeah. at least in the yeah. case of Jinder Mahal, you're saying like th- this is the guy who had to kind of take over for Cena. And of course, there's going to be a difference there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I'm just saying that I, I think Cena was keeping SmackDown very fresh and strong, and the loss of Cena meant that the people that took over after him did not continue that trend. Yeah. And if I felt like I could point to someone else and say, hey, this guy was able to improve the business or do this, or even still being able to say, you know, let me look at it just by main eventers. AJ had a vaguely positive impact, but honestly, it wasn't statistically relevant enough. Kevin Owens had a vaguely positive impact, but so did The Miz. So, I mean, it, it's tough for me to go out of, on a limb here and say, you know, one time I did this, I found Bray Wyatt had great numbers. And then um, what I found, though, is it wasn't statistically relevant. So it, when I when I publish the article and I do it all, you're also going to see, you know, what were the averages for people with who are on different shows or main event at different shows? And you'll be able to be like, oh, my God, look how great this is. Then you'll have to realize that Brock Lesnar doesn't main event shows. Brock Lesnar is still a mid-card match when he's on a house show. So the people that main event that show then artificially look good. So that's why running a regression with these people can be much more powerful than than just looking at averages. And I think the vast majority of the audience at a house show doesn't know what the card is. They, I think a lot of people see who's advertised to appear because that's what they advertise on W.com. When you go to buy tickets or whatever it is, you see the you see the the photos of the the major stars that are going to be there, or even the mid card stars that are going to be there. But yeah, get matches. 
and and so unless someone is injured and you know they're not going to be around like Dean Ambrose or unless you are also including shows like MSG, whoever has the MSG tour is going to get helped a lot. So, you know, being at Madison Square Garden helps your numbers a lot. And so there's an argument that maybe even numbers over 10,000 or 8,000 should be excluded from all house shows because those are not um, indicative of your average house show town. Because unless you're doing a market to market comparison, it's really tough to ever say so-and-so is a draw or not a draw. How would I ever make a really rock solid argument that so-and-so really is a draw or really isn't a draw? Like what are the – what what's the, the – the definitive evidence that we need to see i mean i think if you created a much more uh, a market to market study i think would be one thing mm-hmm. and you'd also want to control for the time of the year the price of the tickets and the temperature really <laughs> well <laughs> temperature you know there's I never been thought cases of that. snowstorms you know like winnipeg uh, had a really bad turnout one year for like a Brock Lesnar match. And I think they blamed it on a snowstorm and things like that, where you, you could argue maybe that's an X factor that we're not including sometimes. We have to extract that, weather data analysis. This yeah. Is see, tougher that's why I say, I, I, I like to, I like to make it high enough bar that I know we're not going to get there. Yeah. We're, we're going to flip gears and we're going to have an interview with, uh, Lavi Margolin, Mar- where we're going to talk Margolin all about Trump mania. A uh, really good interview. In fact, so I saw I saw some footage from ESW show. I didn't realize Kevin yeah. Steen came and worked there one time. Oh yeah, he did. He uh, Colin Delaney and somebody else, Brandon. Uh, he yeah, the Pe- other Brandon. <laughs> Pe- he wrestled Pepper Parks and uh, Colin in a three way, uh, and that was like our attendance record. It was like four fifty. But we did pretty well last night. We were up, up to over four hundred. I heard. So. Well, I'm sure if Mr. Trump was in the house, he would say ten thousand screaming fans with five thousand around the corner. That's right. I bring that up because, Lavi, you've written a new book. You've written a book called Trump Mania, Vince McMahon, WWE, and the Making of America's 45th President. And uh, how long has this book been out? This book just came out uh, two weeks ago, um, January 3rd. I actually had set the Kindle pre-order for a little bit later, and then it it seemed like it was the right time. So I I jumped the gun a little bit with the uh, print copy, but it's all caught up now. How long has this process been for you between when you actually finished the book and when you know the book went into production and when the book could actually be released the first draft was completed in august um i had the opportunity to work with a couple of great um folks whose work i had been a fan of for a long time um john lister um, who's a writer for Fighting Spirit magazine in the UK, and he's written a few books, um, uh, wrestling books as well. One of them is called Slamthology. There's another one that's about the history of ECW. Um, if you've read a couple of history books about ECW, this one is, is still worth it. It's a great book. So um, it, uh, he had some time to edit the book, and I also had reached out to Box Brown, um, the uh, graphic novelist who had written uh, the Andre the Giant graphic novel that had gotten uh, some good buzz a few years ago. So he had created an illustration for each chapter as well as the cover illustration. So that was a couple of months um, for them to do their work. And in November was the formatting and final proofing. And then I had it pretty much uploaded by the end of that month and then was waiting I don't want to say patiently, probably impatiently, getting excited to get it going and sort of lining up um, the wrestling media and making sure everyone uh, that could be aware became aware of it. And uh, I, I know both of those uh, people you mentioned there. John, uh, years ago, was a uh, I interviewed him on this show, actually, Russell Lomics Radio. 
uh, a lot of people think of it as, as Brandon and I, but I've been doing it for a couple more years beyond that. And so John and I have, have communicated for years on Twitter, and I interviewed him about turning the tables, and I actually own Slamol- Slamology as well. Um, uh, oddly enough, just don't, I don't remember how I acquired it, but I just acquired it years and years ago about some essays about him kind of traveling, watching wrestling shows, which is really fun. And Box Brown, I, I've never met, never talked to, but I got his book about Tetris for Christmas this year. And uh, I really enjoyed that a lot. And so I think he's a really skilled uh, uh, illustrator. And so I think it's really great that you're able to get such a uh, accomplished person in here. I was kind of surprised that his bio in the back of it didn't mention the Andre the Giant uh, novel at all. So uh, that was the only thing that really shocked me. So for a second, I was like, is this the same guy? But uh, yeah, I, he, he got a lot of praise for that work there. And I think it's it's kind of fun to have somebody who is so graphically talented who's also interested in professional wrestling. Yeah, it was really an awesome opportunity. I hadn't um, had the pleasure of meeting Box in person and, you know, uh, maybe a, a few Twitter exchanges before reaching out with the email, but I thought the book could really benefit from some visuals, and I think it worked out best to work with Box. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever looked into um, the licensing process with photos from like a, a Reuters services before, but um, when I had looked into that, it was going to be uh, several thousand per picture, and I'm not even talking about the cover, so uh, that was something that I had considered briefly. I actually had reached out to Pro Wrestling Illustrated because um, sometimes you'll see in books where they'll cite them as, as the source where they got their pictures, but usually those are the WWE endorsed books, so um, they were kind enough to write back, but they let me know that those photos were really um, just because of the events or for use in the magazine, but not for sub-licensing. Interesting, interesting. So for all of you aspiring writers out there or people who have done Kickstarters and then given up on it like me, uh, just these are all the hurdles that you have to jump through in order to uh, get your book published. Trump Mania, um, if you had to give us a synopsis of what the book is to you, um, I, I finished the book. I'm kind of curious to hear how you would pitch it to somebody who's never seen it and read it before. Sure. Um, there's two main points that I think the Wrestling Observer, when they had done their daily update, they summarized it well. And I was like, okay, that's a good way of putting it because uh, sometimes it could be a little bit of a struggle. And I'm, I'm not going to get the wording exactly, but I think there's two pillars here. One is to understand how Trump utilized what he learned in professional wrestling to become president from utilizing certain techniques. And the second is to better understand his relationship with Vince and Linda McMahon and how closely they've been tied at certain points. Yeah, I think that was my biggest takeaway in the book here is that sometimes we think of of Donald Trump very much as a special guest star. But really, Donald Trump is a a co-promoter in a lot of these situations here, whether it's WrestleMania 4, WrestleMania 5, or even his MMA history, which I think a lot of people forget about, both his connection with Affliction, but also um, helping with UFC. And so I think that was really kind of the the striking thing to me when I was going through it is thinking about how this wasn't Donald Trump, just the, you know, smiling and, and waving guy on camera. This was a guy who was involved with a lot of the other elements of what the McMahon family was promoting. And as a promoter, kind of that bombastic personality that causes you to exaggerate and lie and kind of that transition into a politician without ever actually switching off the the, the hyperbole switch, it almost feels like. Uh, it was actually interesting because when I first had considered writing the book, I was speaking to a friend about 
different book projects that I was working on. Um, I'm a career coach by trade. I work at uh, in higher education at a, a city-based um, institution, and I often write books about um, interviewing for jobs and using LinkedIn, those sorts of things. And you know, I always have different projects in mind. Um, but I had mentioned to him shortly after the election um, that about Trump and his connection to wrestling, and I was considering a book with that. And his excitement got me excited. And at first, I thought it would be um, very surface level in terms of, okay, um, you know, he's a Hall of Famer and he hosted WrestleMania 4 and 5. But as I had done my research um, and dug and dug more, it was very interesting to see how involved he was and how many connections there were, and especially the the webbing between the events, what went on between, let's say, WrestleMania 5 and WrestleMania 7, or when things became quiet before the Battle of the Billionaires. Those points were something that, that really interested me. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see how long that relationship goes between the two. Um, have you ever found any connections between the, the Trumps and the McMahons that kind of predate WrestleMania 4? I didn't. And the impression that I got was WrestleMania 4 really proved to both parties that there's something here. Even though there was the commitment um, to do WrestleMania 5, which is often confused where people say WrestleMania 5 was because WrestleMania 4 worked out so well. There was a deal in place to do WrestleMania 4 and 5 already, which creativity Creatively, um, it might have been, and that's why there was a year-long story arc, although I can't verify that. But um, the deal that was worked out between uh, Mark grossinger Edis of um, the Trump Organization and the WWE people um, was outside of the highest levels, of course, approved by them. But I think once uh, Trump and Vince McMahon got to know each other around the event and in the year between WrestleMania 4 and 5, that's when the relationship began to solidify more. Your book has a lot of specific descriptions from, you know, WrestleMania 4, WrestleMania 5, the WBF show, the Glow show, all stuff that happened at Trump properties in Atlantic City. Did you go back and rewatch all of these shows for the book? Yes, um, and it was it was great to rewatch them with new eyes, um, where you know, having watched them probably a number of years ago, maybe the last time I watched those early WrestleManias was when there was a VHS box set, WrestleMania 1 to 15, where I went mm-hmm. through the whole run of it. Uh, but looking at it much more recently, especially looking at what, where was Trump on camera, what was being emphasized, it was interesting to see how much of an imprint um, Trump's name and the organization had over WrestleMania 4. Whereas it was also interesting to see how WrestleMania V um, had less of an imprint, perhaps with um, the fact in mind that this was the second of the two events and um, there might not be another, so they can scale back on that a little bit and focus more on the wrestling. Um, The um, GLOW event was um, really interesting to find and to document. I just came across a postcard on eBay that had been a promotion to regular gamblers that were on the mailing list for Trump um, hotels or casinos in Atlantic City, and it was an invitation for up to two people to attend a comp event between WrestleMania 4 and 5. I had uh, trouble finding any information about the event, 
So I went to the Glow Facebook page that is actually managed by a former um, Glow performer. Um, I apologize, I should have her name, her full name and, and uh, working title in front of me, but her first name is Dawn. And she was very generous in, uh, over Facebook in explaining the event and what occurred. And she pointed me in the direction, which I saw was publicly available later, that there was a whole cheesy skit where Donald Trump wasn't in it, but it was filmed in a, a Trump hotel. And um, they kept mentioning him where they were trying to set one of the Glow performers up on a date with Donald Trump. It's pretty difficult to watch, but it's interesting to see in its context and how um, there's still a footprint with wrestling, even when it has nothing to do with the WWE. And and the fact that it's it's Trump as a married man, and yet it's all about all these women who want to go on a date with him, and you know, just kind of the there doesn't seem to be any concern that you know you're you're not portraying him in a positive light as long as the women are fawning over him. That's what they really want, and also that they're of course they were very associated with the the Riviera Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. So it's kind of interesting to see that they went to a, another casino for the house show loop that uh, I know they struggled a lot to kind of do it. I think they only drew a few hundred people, right, for that show? Um, according to Dawn, the ballroom was full. I, can't, I, I know it was sort of the third rate of the Trump properties. Um, I wouldn't imagine it was more than several hundred, probably less than a couple of thousand. Yeah, and oh, for sure. Were yeah, and I was going to say, that was, that was always the thing they said about Glow, was that it was... Um, Successful on television in the sense that people would watch it was not successful on television in the sense that there was a lot of people who wanted to advertise during it. And it wasn't that successful as a house show property because uh, people wouldn't necessarily want to go and watch the shows live. Uh, And so it was one of these really strange things where you could say, yeah, it got really high ratings, but yet it really was never a financially successful program. Um, it's just kind of interesting to see that intersection there. What about the WBF show? Uh, where you know it is, like you said, you mentioned here, it's, it's kind of legendary in the sense for both its campiness, its its um, production, its WWF quality to it, and then also the fact it's such a collector's item now because so few copies of it were distributed, made, sold, and recorded at the time. Were you able to actually find a WW, WBF copy? No, I couldn't find that, and I couldn't even find a full um, event video online. It's it's so rare that whoever owns it, the the small percentage of people that own it, one of them didn't even bother to upload it uh, or to convert it. But um, from what I was able to piece together, um, I found one of the most interesting parts of it that McMahon um, would lean back on the... Trump organization or Donald Trump to do another event. Um, When he introduced the WBF, it was through Trump's crown jewel at the time, the plaza, which he always um, thirsted after, uh, being able to look at it outside this window, this beautiful um, hotel, one of New York's, you know, most famed uh, events, uh, spaces. Um, So it gave credibility to Trump to own it. And it gave credibility to McMahon to um, be able to have a news conference 
uh, announcing the WBF, and not to jump the gun, but six months later has to defend himself against steroid allegations in the very same hotel. So leaning back on Trump again. But I give Trump credit for uh, attending the WBF event um, and being visible, as it was pretty clear it was going to be a disaster. And he supported his friend, and he was happy to get whatever revenue for hosting the event as well. I think that's that's kind of the interesting legacy of Donald Trump with with Vince McMahon, because he's both a promoter, he's a special guest star, and then later he's a arguably a match participant or a storyline participant and, of course, a Hall of Famer. And so he, he checks a lot of boxes in a way that many people are just, you know, kind of uh, floating by. I know when you talk a lot later about the Hall of Fame, you, you mentioned how Dave Meltzer compares him Trump to the league of of Mr. T and Cindy Lauper of people that, you know, kind of really got involved and arguably had an impactful effect on the business level because of their involvement. I think for the celebrities to be successful, they sort of have to have an interest or a passion in it in some level. It's very hard to take someone and transplant them into this bizarre world that has its own rules. It's, it's not entertainment exactly. It's not sports exactly. And to be able to excel. And Trump, enjoying the spotlight, he fully embraced that. And although it was difficult for him to remember Bobby Lashley's name, um, uh, for a number of months, um, he really got into the, the process of it all and was willing to take the Stone Cold Stunner without much uh, practice or really any any practice at all, just witnessing it uh, possibly being shown on, on Stone Cold doing it on one performer um, and perhaps viewing some video of it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a really dangerous move and, and being advised not to do it. So credit to him on that part. Uh, but uh, I'm sure once he heard it would blow the roof off the place that uh, it, it outweighed the risks to him. You, you you mentioned in the book about – or actually you mentioned in, in our interview here that you, you said they're friends between Vince and Trump. Do you think there's a friendship there? At least at, on the surface level as they've always portrayed it um, to the media um, and through their own vehicles um, in a forward-facing way. Um, they've both said my friend a, a number of times – does either one actually have any friends in life? You know, this is, I guess, an existential question. Who are they? And, and you know, where, where are they grounded? I don't, you know, I don't know. They're very complicated people, but they obviously find a lot of validation in each other. Yeah, what, what is that kinship, do you think, built on? What are, what are the similarities between their two um, approaches to life that you think they would, would find copacetic? I think... They both are into the idea that, you know, if you're successful, it means you're the best, only the strong survive. Um, you know, being willing to do what you need to do to get ahead. But the point where they really connect with each other is they've both been successful in their own ways, but they've both been dinged um, for that success or had some of um, shade thrown on them. Um, whether it was uh, an association of their success being because of family, I would say more so for Trump than McMahon, although McMahon's buying of the company at such a good price obviously was a family um, discount um, and a huge opportunity for him. But they're 
at certain points, with most of the country or most of the public, they're kind of seen as jokes. Um, and and so, they and they fight with the media a lot too, where I think they they feel that they've been unfairly portrayed by the media as fools or or as as um, carnival barkers. Yeah, and there's that expectation that okay, we are successful, so you should um, you should respect our us. success. Yeah, and with McMahon and Trump, they could sort of validate each other. Okay, this is another billionaire, depending on how the stock market swings for, for McMahon. And we have to assume Trump is, although, um, you know, people always doubt his, his numbers and his wealth. Um, but, you know, seemingly so, this is another billionaire that really respects me. As, as you could see in the programming, um, more McMahon to Trump that even when he's feuding with him, they're always sort of building him up. Okay, this is a successful businessman. This is the author of The Art of the Deal and so on. So it's, it's sort of like sh- whenever you're feuding with me, don't go hard. Kind of like keep, keep building me up. And Trump, although, you know, when he has his public appearances and discusses the McMahons, he discusses their success and their friendship. He doesn't as much have to uh, build up, you know, their, their success. Uh, although he refers to Linda McMahon as a, as a great um, you know entrepreneur and, and small business person, of course, when appointing her for the SBA administrator. What what are your thoughts about their family dynamics in both their relationships with their dad and their relationships with their children? That's um, it's complicated, certainly. Um, I know more about McMahon's, of course, than than Trump's, but. You know, looking more at the sort of the, the father to children relationships, they both like to keep their family close. Um, I think a, a lot of it is a trust thing. As people who seem to, you know, be able to feel that maneuver based on opportunity, they, it seems like they have the inclination to sort of like grasp for power and kind of take advantage where they can. So if you have that natural inclination, I'd imagine you'd imagine others do too. Uh, that wouldn't be just uh, for you. So when you have family, you feel that there's some sense of, of connection, a greater connection there that they'll be more loyal to you. Um, they've both uh, championed their their daughters very much um, uh, to either take over one day or at least have their own platform um, to build upon. So, and, and, and with that, I think it's fascinating that just that dynamic between the daughter and the daughter's legacy with their father's business. There's that quote in The Fire and the Fury about uh, how Ivanka wanted to kind of transcend the business that her father was in, real estate, and this male-dominated business and be this kind of icon for women and and uh, as both a woman entrepreneur and also a successful businesswoman. And I, I always find there's a lot of analogy there to Stephanie, where you can kind of hear that influence also kind of ringing through in her voice. Yes, and it's curious to watch Stephanie recently in terms of where, where she's trying to go. Is she trying to become a philanthropist? I think there's a little bit of doubt in her mind as we consider potential sale options if she will run the company one day. So she's positioning herself in a few different ways to be ready, you know, no matter what happens. Oh, yeah. And I think in that case, too, you you see a lot more influence of her husband, where in some ways he's 
becoming more and more adept at being able to fill that role in a way that a few years ago he he had no experience. You know, he wasn't on the board of directors. He didn't really hold a official title in wrestling beyond kind of booking assistant and has now really moved more into being what an actual executive has to do and kind of gaining that credibility both with the investors, the analysts, the shareholders. But, you know, we're seeing him more and more at those conferences talking. And uh, I, I, I imagine it's it's next to impossible to have both parents be, you know, completely involved in the business 24-7. So at some point, one of them has to kind of take on a more parental role. Um, we even heard that Paul Levesque was meeting with Fox and we even heard him chime in on a conference call last time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're just see in a way, I think you're very much right that Stephanie has, I think as the children have gotten older, I think Stephanie's been the one that's maybe spending more time at home, not less on the road. And, you know, triple H is still being very involved, especially as Vince McMahon has in some ways begun kind of checking out a little bit more. Um, and, yeah, just that interaction between the the McMahons and the Trumps and their children is is just interesting to me too because I also think you have that that brother sister rivalry going on where you know there's different power structures in the in the building and in the the family and and they're supposed to be all this big happy family and yet at the same time you can kind of tell one might be the favorite over another for one parent or a different parent. And from what I've read, Shane is the most genuine of 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 the group in terms of he just loves wrestling he's a fan you know it doesn't make necessarily for the best executive where he'll see let's say a pride uh let's buy that you know dad <laughs> or um or uh, ecw let's let's have it as a web exclusive you know so in some ways he's very um sort of uh progressive in terms of thinking about technology and, and different concepts and ideas but i don't know if he's as grounded in the numbers um, as we've seen with some of his businesses struggling, although I, I can't speak to that exactly, but I think he would he would just love to own it and you know earn his dad's respect. But uh, they would talk about when there would have to be cutbacks at the WWE. He'd be figuring out, okay, how can we you know save the jobs of some of my people in my division? Whereas some of the other executives would just think, okay, let's cut X amount out. It, not and, not the ruthless aggression that that Vince McMahon might preach. Yes, he's a different mindset, I'd say. Now. Um, one element you talk about in the book here is um, something that I think Brandon has read, something that I've read, uh, the 1989 New Jersey legislative hearing where uh, basically WWF, as I understand it, is is going before the legislature and saying, hey, we're not a sporting event. We are a an entertainment event, and therefore we should be taxed differently. We shouldn't be taxed like a sporting event, and uh, you should reduce it because, hey, it's all predetermined. Did you read all that Linda testimony? Oh, um, I'll admit I did not. That's a great okay. point. Perhaps I should have actually, but um, oh, I, was, I was looking at it more from like um, uh, going to the newspapers. dot com archives and mm-hmm. looking at all of the coverage of the event. Um, and of course, there was the important reductions would relate to um, pay per views and, and live events taxes. Um, it would also have effects on regulations such as um, medical testing. Yeah. But the, the the part that I found most interesting was that since it was taking place not too far outside of the uh, New York City uh, market, that there was this blowback, again, of, of this admitting wrestling is fake. And then uh, 
McMahon had to go out and defend it, and Jesse Ventura sort of like walk it back. And the other promoters started seeing it as an opportunity to say, yeah, yours is fake, but we're real. Yeah. Uh, and there's actually even a um, – if you ever do a version two of the book, you can you can probably throw in a little bit more about – there was even some tax court filings where WWF was challenging the taxes on them. And so it came out, you know, the actual gates for I think WrestleMania and WrestleMania four and five were as part of that, and and the number of locations that had closed cap or closed circuit and whatnot. And it was the argument basically over, you know, did we owe royalties on this or not on this or not royalties but taxes? And um, so there's a whole bunch of tax court documents. If you're a member of the Pro Wrestling Legal Research uh, and Archive, uh, I think I have a lot of those documents up there too, including all that 1989 Linda testimony. You have an interesting quote at the end of, of that section where you said, it may have been Linda's most high-profile early appearance as a representative of the company and perhaps sparked an interest in governmental administrative process and future political aspirations. So you're reading into that situation that maybe that was one of the cases where Linda was saying, I don't necessarily want to be a wrestling promoter's wife or a wrestling promoter president of a company, but rather I'd, I might want to be a government um, em- ambassador. Yes, I think with the spotlight of the WWF, it was always going to be Vince McMahon sort of pushed to the forefront where uh, Linda did get a lot of credit behind the scenes as, uh, for her um, business management and, and practices. Uh, memo to Pat Patterson aside. Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the, being involved in this process and, you know, getting this publicity, but also speaking to these, um, you know, high-level government officials might have been a, a point in her life where she said, oh, you know, this is an interesting possibility for me. I enjoy this. I think this might be something that I'm good at. And, um, you know, sparked an interest that she um, wanted to explore. I think that's always the one thing that I look at as a real big difference between that Trump and, and McMahon dynamics where – you know, Vince has been married to Linda this entire time through affairs that have been documented as part of the steroid trial and other things. But they both kind of had their own aspirations. And Trump, on the other hand, his his wives have seemed to be very um, disinvolved for the most part with what he's doing in a lot of ways, you know, almost kind of being on the side, completely separate. And yes, he, he gave one of them, I think he had her manage the Plaza Hotel, was it? Where she was going to get a salary of a dollar a year and all the handbags she could buy or dresses. Was that yeah, Marla or Ivanka? Uh, Marla? That was um, uh, Ivanka. Ivanka, okay. And then and Marla, of course, was the, you know, um, well, she one of the three hosts of WrestleMania six. When they were out in L.A., where where is her, Regis Philbin, and Alex Trebek? Yes, WrestleMania 7. 7, sorry. And so, yeah, it just it, it's interesting to me just kind of that very different dynamic where, you know, Linda has always ended up with Vince and, and you know, has in some ways now begun to eclipse him with this cabinet role um, kind of in, in terms of, of making a name for herself and doing things where – you know, you you have Melania who is you know intentionally staying away from the White House and out of the spotlight as much as she can. I think for and you know not not to speak too much of their their marriages, uh, you know, but uh, Vince and Linda came up together. I think they had met you know in in South Carolina in and, church. Uh, in church, uh, and that's actually where where Trump met uh, Marla. If you look at the uh, oh the, the Pew story, yeah. Of the New York Post, but um, 
uh, you know, they were sort of life partners, although obviously he didn't live up to some of the, many of the bonds of marriage that they, they've always been in this together. For Trump, you know, his wealth was created separately or he inherited it separately. And to him, as we see the way he interacts with women, it's more of a, um, a supplemental piece to his life as opposed to being an integral piece. The other thing that that always strikes me with this is their relationship with their father, because you you have a quote in here about uh, Trump talking about that. Was was it something like his father saw him at WrestleMania and that and said he looked good and that made him feel happy or something like that? Yes, it was. uh, His father was was happy that he was involved with uh, WrestleMania and and, um, hearing about Andre the Giant, which a lot of people like to lean back on. Um, So that that had given him uh, satisfaction. And and I think that's, you know, when you read other things about Donald Trump, that that comes out a lot, that there's this seeking of his father's approval constantly in his life versus uh, Vince McMahon, who kind of has the two fathers, right? So he has the the desire to please his stepfather and and uh, uh, or his desire to please, you know, Vince Senior in some ways and and have his respect and, and admiration and then kind of his anger at his own, I think, his stepfather he talks about in some of his interviews. Um, that had led to him uh, going to military school and then being sent to live with his his um, his uh, natural father and sort of getting him on the road to uh, to where he is. You have a great story in uh, one section here about the USA Today conflicting numbers on closed circuit. Do you want to want to just kind of explain that little story? I think this was about WrestleMania five. Yes. So. Um, uh, you know, the throughout the book, as we talk about WrestleNomics um, and uh, reporting of attendance and earnings and buy rates and closed circuit locations and so on, one of the biggest challenges is to nail down the accurate numbers. Um, and at one point, I was going to have, in addition to where are they now in the back, I was going to have um, every uh, event uh, associated with Trump, and I would have the attendance and the buy rates or closed circuit locations. And at a certain point I said, I don't know if I can do this <laughs> just because there's so much conflicting uh, information. So where I put in the, the body of the book, the, the numbers is reported by the most accurate um, resources and kind of go from there. But for WrestleMania five, like you mentioned, it was most interesting because in USA Today there was two mentions of closed circuit locations. One was in an actual art, was in an article, and the second was in an advertisement that would list the locations, and the numbers were concluding, were conflicting. The article had hyped up a much larger number than um, the actual closed circuit locations that the event would be held in. And we see the same thing happening with um, even WrestleMania one. I remember that, you know, there's there's reports of, you know, 128 locations and then in in like a New York Times article. And then, you know, by the time the actual event, that number starts dwindling down and it, it kind of goes towards that narrative of saying, you know, there was a lot of confusion at the time about whether it was going to be a raving success or whether it was just going to be kind of a mild success. Um but I, I thought that was amusing. I, I'm guessing you read a lot of old observers from the 80s at, to kind of also help you kind of find some of these nuggets where I'm sure in the real time, Dave was one of the few people that was kind of reporting on this week to week. 
Yes, one of the first things I did was ask Dave how I could obtain the any issue that mentioned WrestleMania four or five or Trump um, from the from the late eighties. So that was uh, that was kind of cool to get those um, those copies in the mail. And um, you know, with any research related to wrestling, Dave's an important uh, early stop or a first stop. So I used the um, you know the uh, search feature, of course, for members on Wrestling Observer, sort of you know as a base and. Um, uh, found his information really, uh, really insightful. What about um, uh, the WBF? Did you read the there, – there's a, a website, I think it's called Pro Wrestling Chronicle, and they did a really good piece called The Rise and Fall of the WBF. Did you find that one in your research? Yes, that was amazing, and there was a second one that, that I cited in the book as well. People can check check it out. Um, that was similarly comprehensive. So those were sort of the the ten poles for um, WBF related research. And and that's you know that's something that I I'm a little bit passionate about is is sometimes trying to preserve these little nuggets of information that at the time can kind of feel like big failures. Or, or strange little footnotes, but the reality is if you don't find a way to record, you know, the results of tiny little indie fed companies or things like that, you lose so much history. Like I, I've said before, I used to be annoyed at the Observer had such a large section taken up by the results because I thought, who who really cares? We don't need that. We want news. But now as someone who, you know, mines that information to try to, you know, create a, a fuller picture of what was happening in the world, especially in the early 90s, uh, I love that stuff. And so I'm so glad that, you know, people have taken the time to write those articles and and done it. And it, it kind of helps us. One thing I, I appreciated in your book was kind of the cobbling together of all these different sources and all these different stories um, from all these different places as, you know, people continue to reminisce about these events. Um, we hear new versions of the stories. We hear new details. One one story that came out that I was intrigued by was the Brutus the Beefcake story about trying to sell tickets. Oh, yes. Um, so that was in the... Um, uh, actually, I'm staring at it right now. The official insider story of WrestleMania by, uh, you know, longtime executive uh, Basil DeVito. Um, so... Uh, Brutus Beefcake um, was, of course, um, at WrestleMania 4. And um, you can actually see in the book, uh, for one of the events, they show you sort of like a ticket for a WrestleMania. And it says, uh, uh, not good if if sold and complimentary. And they even include like a little note that you're part of the WrestleMania family and you could call for tickets. So they distribute a fair amount of tickets uh, at these events to the wrestlers to utilize. So uh, Beefcake being, you know, an old school um, hustler from, from the wrestling business, um, he had seen uh, Mark Grossinger Edis, um, the key point, the key executive for Trump for getting this event uh, going. Um, and he said, uh, you know, here, you know, I, I have uh, X amount of tickets. Go sell them on the boardwalk and, and bring me back the cash. Yeah, and and he gets caught basically then, right? And and turned back into WWF. Yeah, so uh, Edis goes to the WWF executives and he's like, I don't know what to, what to do with this, but uh, you know, with, with all that was going on at the time, I think they they quickly looked past that. You know, and and Edis, I think, is a really interesting figure in this story here. I have not read a lot of um, stories about early Donald Trump you know, business success. But one thing you kind of paint is the idea that when Edis died, I think you said it was 1989, 
that that might have been one of the biggest impediments to continuing on kind of the Atlantic City relationship with the WWF, which was that he, he was gone and perhaps he was a much more key figure in that relationship than than we had been, you know, than a lot of people have realized. Yes. Um, so, you know, when I saw the name Grossinger Edis, for me personally, it sort of like hit a note um, uh, here in um, in upstate New York, so about uh, two miles, uh, sorry, about two hours up up the road um, is something that used to be called the the Borscht Belt, which was um, in the 1950s and 1970s um, immigrant families uh, would travel upstate for the summer, you know, for to relax and sort of cool off, and it wasn't very expensive. And there was a number of sort of medium-sized um, hotels that weren't very expensive. And one of them that had been around a number of years and was well-known was called Grossinger's. So he comes from a family of um, hotel hosts and event managers. So he became one of um, Trump's right-hand people in Atlantic City. And um, Trump always had this sort of uh, push and pull between wanting to only associate with the highest level gamblers and needing uh, the more middle to lower class to have enough volume to keep the doors open. And that actually led to uh, some early friction with one of his partners that helped him to open his first hotel in Atlantic City. So uh, Grossinger Edis, he attended a... Um, or, or presented even at a uh, casino marketing uh, event. Um, and he made connections to the WWF through that. And they had said that they were looking to attract the more middle market gambler. Um, the type of um, gambler in New Jersey or Pennsylvania that was in business for themselves, whether that was an allusion to mafia or to something else untoward is unclear, but I just found that statement very interesting. I did um, too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they really wanted to attract these type of gamblers who would bring their families. So as the WWF was growing in the cultural zitgeist of family friendly programming, um, they really saw that as a key to bringing in families, especially on uh, Palm Sunday in April, that wouldn't necessarily attract a lot of um, uh, attendees anyway. So they were perhaps the uh, first, um, definitely for WrestleMania, to uh, put in a site fee. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's like a bid the way they do WrestleMania now. It was it was kind of a, a, a precursor to that. They were one of the first ones to be like, we'll pay you to kind of come here rather than you're paying us to book this building. Yes. And they, they came up with all these ideas for events as they do now. Uh, bagels, biceps and brunch, which they carried on for a while. Um, a boardwalk run with Bruno Sammartino and, and, and so on. Um, so he was the point person that kind of got these events going and helped, of course, to get the contract signed for two years. But also he was the point person where they, they had actually said in a press conference, it might have been the press conference that he died coming back in a helicopter from, from New York City. I don't know that exactly, but where he talked about that they wanted to be sort of what Titan Sports was, meaning that the, their success in promoting sports as they were focused more on uh, boxing. 
And and you, you talk about, you know, Trump was involved with Mike Tyson's camp a lot. And so there's questions about does that create a conflict of interest, of course, if you are intimately involved with the champion, are you are you really booking quote unquote fair events? But you, you have an interesting story here about the act of war clause. Can you explain that? Yes. So um, uh, Trump um, had a uh, something in, in the contract where uh, if if war is declared, it, it, it would have assuming that it has like a negative effect upon being able to run a, an entertainment or sports event. So um, when he would invoke this, I'm sorry, I don't have the specifics in front of me, but when he would evoke this, he would be able to either cancel an event or um, apply a deep discount um, into the fee that he was paying. So, for example, let's say he had planned to uh, pay $20 million to host a big boxing event. Um, he could apply this clause and only have to pay $13 million. And, but and really I think... Where he- yeah, I think lawyers would say that in, in torts or whatever that you know some so all contracts have kind of certain out clauses. One, you know, you can't do a contract with a minor that is not. You can't do it with someone who's incapacitated in some way. And then there's oftentimes this kind of force majeure or, or act of God. And I think within that clause, sometimes there's an act of war clause that basically says this would trump no pun intended, the, the contract and allow you to either cancel it. And, and what I'm assuming he's doing is basically renegotiating it at that point, saying, hey, I have the right to kill this clause and now I can change. And and, and that's fascinating because it does say a lot about Trump. You know, he, he was rumored in many situations not to pay contractors and then try to renegotiate with them basically after the fact to force them to take less money on, on the deal. And so it's interesting because you started off by saying he overpaid for the rights for something, and then he was able to use this act of war clause to kind of get out of it. Yes, with the Gulf War being declared, he was able to leverage these boxing promoters to say sort of like, okay, you guys are going to do it on your own now? Like, sort of like they knew they were up the creek, um, so he was able to utilize that. But it was really sort of his last hurrah in boxing as his uh, empire began to crumble, and he couldn't look towards boxing or even wrestling events at WrestleMania 7, uh, he was interviewed in that sort of an infamous interview with Sean Mooney, who got um, uh, very nervous during the interview, and Trump said that they would certainly be back uh, at one of his venues in Atlantic City, and they weren't back, and they didn't come back for a number of years, um, independently of him. You mentioned, you know, Trump going public with the DJT ticker, and it just makes... You know, there's these parallels between the McMahons and the Trumps where you say, okay, yep, they went public and they had to deal with all the the scrutiny that comes with doing that. Of course, I don't think WWF has chosen to uh, finance itself using leveraged debt the way that uh, the the Trump organization did. So there's certainly um, lessons to be learned there. But um, I, I just always find it, you know, kind of intriguing just seeing kind of the similar patterns between the two because we hear these rumors that Donald Trump at night goes and, quote, calls his Rolodex of billionaires. And for the longest time, you know, it seems so strange to me that concept of, of him calling these people and telling them what he was going to do or what he said and did and then feeling like they were encouraging him because you, you'd kind of think, oh, these are billionaires. These are very smart principled people that should understand, you know, what the ramifications of these decisions would be. But on the flip side, if you put if you replace the word billionaire with Vince McMahon and then you think Donald Trump calls Vince McMahon and says what he's going to do, how would Vince McMahon react to it? And the idea that Vince McMahon might just laugh and say, ha ha, go ahead, pal. 
you know, that that somehow makes a lot more sense to me <laughs> that, you know, Vince is the sort of guy that, you know, kind of is like, you do you. And uh, uh, is always a guy that, you know, w- people have questioned some of his decision making as, as time goes on. And so suddenly it, it some sometimes it makes more sense to me. But I, I have this vision in my mind of, you know, almost Vince calling Trump saying, you know, I'm thinking about going public. Is it a good idea or not uh, back in that day? And, and just kind of wonder what Trump's take on the entire thing would be about whether it was a great decision or a terrible decision for him. Yeah, it's, it's interesting with uh, people of this level of wealth. At the at the end of the day, they're still people, and they're still looking for validation, especially from people like them. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been in that position yet to know exactly, but you know, at times I've traveled to different events or programming um, and made connections in, in Long Island, for example, expensive areas. And you could see some of the older people, um, you just hear about their wealth, but still they're sort of jockeying for position to run um, a community organization or they have these old rivalries from 30 years ago where you think it doesn't matter, but it still matters to them because uh, once you have so much money, you're not focused as much on the money. You're focused on you know, the respect and what people think of you, so they're always looking for this validation. One one area of your um your story that you you speak on very gen- generally is just kind of you know WWE goes and launches the XFL. Of course, we have all the rumors now about the XFL, and in fact, the connections. You know, David Bixen's band wrote about how the URF, URFL and uh, UFL and eventually XFL trademarks being done through Vince's Alpha Entertainment Company was was somewhat uh timed, at least in the registration process around when Donald Trump was making comments about the NFL. But um, we, we don't really go very deep into the, the USFL, but uh, did you read up a little bit on Trump's time with the USFL and the New Jersey Generals? Not too much. Um, my knowledge is, is probably fairly surface level, but um, what I do know was that um, you know it was a uh, conglomerate of, of owners that were involved in the USFL, and the agreement was that we're not going to you know, overbid on talent. Um, so that we can sort of maintain this this thing, and <laughs> as soon as uh, that said, Trump goes out and he you know spends free uh, spends on some huge free agents. I believe Herschel Walker was was um, one of the key talents. I, I could be wrong there, but <laughs> he's kind of blamed for uh, the league's quick demise as, as they're trying to maintain a, a structured um, financial position, and you know to Trump. You, you sort of go big or go home, and uh, that wouldn't have been something he was able to avoid. Again, just one of these you know parallels between the McMahons and the Trumps there is the, the football connection, the going public connection, and all those other things. So I, I just found that so intriguing. Um, Trump and M- MMA, I think, you know, you, you had a thing in there I never heard. I didn't realize that Trump was in, what is it, the New Jersey MMA Hall of Fame? Yes. Um, I don't know uh, how many people have heard of that. I, I, I found it very interesting to, to come across that as well. Yeah, that was an intriguing one to me there. Uh, and just, of course, the affliction uh, connection where you, you, we've seen a little bit of coverage of this. Of course, anytime people are trying to find various examples of Donald Trump being involved with Russian organizations, uh, you, you you have to think of a little bit of the connections with Affliction and with Fedor and Fedor's company and, and just kind of the challenges of working with his management group at the time. Uh, 
yes, and um, I, I actually had the pleasure of attending um, one of those MMA events um, in Atlantic City when it was um, it was uh, MFC um, mixed I think mixed fighting championships, and it was Russia versus either the USA or Russia versus the world. And um, the USA or the world pretty much swept the field, but it was a very odd night. And um, I'm not sure if Trump was in attendance. I don't remember him being so in, in the Taj Mahal, but it was a very Russian crowd. And I went with a friend who has deep connections, being from Russia and sort of understanding the culture and such. And according to his speculation, I, I can't validate this at all, he kind of felt that the crowd was filled with uh, gangsters and, and people that were very well connected in that world. Well, and then, of course, later on, um, there was the event in, in Russia where Fedor was fighting and Putin literally sat in the front row of the uh, event. So uh, would not be surprised uh, which people that, that were kind of being brought out by some of these MMA organizations at the time, especially to sell tickets where it was um, challenging, at, to say the least, to to always uh, have a successful event. Um, you talk about 2000. We fast forward here. Trump is now with Melania. Um, he's just divorced his wife in 99. There's, you know, rumors about him being a reform party candidate, kind of in the, the mold of maybe a Jesse Ventura at the time. And then you talk a little bit about the WWF and it's the larger context of does WWF choose winners and losers when it comes to political battles and this discussion about the 2000 election and what was being said on television by Lawler at the time and Jim Ross. Do you think that WWF actually had an impact on the 2000 election, or do you think this is a narrative that's kind of been created by wrestling fans or wrestling media? I think that since it was so close, everything that convinced a small group of people that either wouldn't have voted or would have voted a different way, especially in the state of Florida, had an impact. So, you know, through the wrestling lens, um, we would we would have to say this is what did it right this is what had the impact because um you know however many uh, let's say uh, a few hundred thousand people wrestling fans in florida watched that night when when the ratings were were very good at the time um if it convinced x amount of people to change their vote then that's what did it so from that context it did but from another context how many other factors were in play yeah i'm sure there was spanish language media that was happening in florida that you know we are completely unaware of at that time that could have also had a huge impact that you know we just haven't thought about because it's not in the lens that we use to analyze these events exactly so i kind of see it more as a sort of butterfly effect rather than a direct connection because maybe if they didn't do it um, you know, Bush wouldn't have won, but a lot of other groups, if they didn't do it too, maybe Bush would have won as well. And did he really win in the end? <laughs> it's a very complicated story. So I think it, it was a story. Um, Bix did um, did cover it more uh, as well, um, sort of in the context of WWE's GOP connections uh, a few weeks after I had written um, – sort of written a more extensive piece on it um, for an article. Um, but it was something where it was almost done and then nearly forgotten about. I actually confirmed with, with Dave on Twitter. I was like, did I misremember this? Did this actually happen? And then when I went back and, and looked at it on the network, it was really amazing to uh, to see that it. Lawler was, 
he was almost hesitant to buy in at first. And you can imagine like uh, uh, Vince, Vince selling on the headset, you know, sell it, sell it, uh, as he changes his tune there. And, and Ross goes along with it too. And uh, we know where, where Lawler stands. Um, and uh, Ross, we don't know, but uh, certainly he played a part um, in, in endorsing that as well by saying that uh, he wouldn't be voting for, for the other candidate. Yeah, and I think it's inarguable that Vince McMahon and, and Linda McMahon have supported GOP and Republican candidates very consistently for at least, you know, a, a dozen years or more. That they've been very involved in both the Connecticut Republican Party giving out, but then Linda, especially when she kind of retired from WWE, um, she went and she was a would write checks to lots and lots and lots of Republicans around the country with her organization there. And so there, there's I don't think there's any doubt that they have been very RNC heavy leaning, especially in the last few years here. Um, as of 2000, I think they were a little bit more agnostic, though. Uh, I'm sure they were always in a any um, supporting of any program that would lower their corporate taxes for them, uh, for sure. Um, that. It's interesting to see kind of that evolution over time here where, as you talk about, it almost feels like there's been a moratorium about talking about Donald Trump since about 2016. Yes, and, um, you know, what's come out now, you know, post-publication with um, the Raw 25th anniversary and um, as you guys talked about last week on on WrestleNomics Radio, the responses of um, Triple H and, and Stephanie to why um, uh, Trump wasn't in the scissor reel. Um, so, you know, whether it was an official gag order is sort of up for debate. Um, Seth Rollins um, denied uh, strongly that there was, that people who support him uh, can speak out, people who didn't support him can speak out about that as well. Um, but um, when reporters were going back and trying to find people that were uh, less connected with the company, it was, it was harder to find people. As I mentioned, that you know, people wrestlers always feel like they're one phone call away from coming back, or they don't want to get on Vince's bad side. So from that sense, it seemed like approval wasn't being given. But over Twitter with the current wrestlers, uh, especially with um, somebody like Sami Zayn, who's um, a proud, um, I, I would say, Muslim Canadian, if I have that correct. He um, at least comes from a Muslim family, for sure, and, and has spoken very highly about you know any events that involve impacting Muslims negatively. Yes, and who's very connected to Syrian relief. Um, he, you know, spoke out very strongly against Trump on on Twitter. Um, uh, you know, and, and a few. I, other I think things. Mustafa Ali and um, Sasha Banks have have said things or done things on social media that seem to imply that you know they don't like things that Trump is doing. Yes, and so I I think. I think they're sort of ca- smartly cautious about it, but you do see it come out a little bit, and you see, um, you know, obviously Jerry Lawler is, uh, you know, his Facebook um, profile is himself a Trump. When Trump posted the video of um, uh, some that somebody had created on Reddit um, uh, about him thrashing. Uh, 
Vince McMahon, but it was replaced with the CNN logo from WrestleMania 23. Um, you know, he was like, how cool, I'm, I'm an announcer there. He just doesn't seem to get it in the same way that he just doesn't seem to get it in terms of respecting women and, um, you know, issues about, uh, um, you know, uh, women's rights and so on, which, which have been documented. It's sort of like as a 60-something-year-old man, not to excuse it, it's just his adult learning curve has seemed to stop and he just doesn't get why people don't agree with him or, or don't find some of the things offensive. Well, that was one thing that kind of made me uh, think at the very end here when you were doing your where are they now? You're like Donald Trump's 71, Vince McMahon is 71, Linda's 68, uh, Triple H is 47, Stephanie's 40, Bonnie Hammer is 66, Jesse is 66, Jerry is 67, Jim Ross is 65, Hogan is 63, uh, Backlund is 67. You know, a lot of people in their 60s here and just kind of how intransient they might seem in their views at this time. Um, I, I think there's been a discussion, at least I've seen online before, about, you know, are pro wrestlers more generally leaning um, a Republican or Democrat? And it's been interesting because I, I do think that that dynamic has shifted in this last two years here where um, I think the social policies – and the inconsistency of what the Trump administration is kind of advocated for has turned a lot of people who historically were much more libertarian about the views to kind of be like, I, I can't stand for these kind of policies and these kind of rhetoric and, and response to social movements. And so it'll be interesting to see if there is a change because I had always heard, you know, kind of through the grapevine that a lot of people were, you know, like I say, more libertarian in the viewpoint of of I'm an independent contractor. I prefer things where it's it's my own choice for how I want to work. I don't like people interfering with that. Um, and of course, maybe it's the overarching effect of having the largest company in the world being controlled by people that are strongly in the Republican camp that that influences, you know, also uh, how it trickles through the, the workers themselves. Um, Brandon. Uh, how, how do you feel backstage at the uh, <laughs> the shows when you put up your Joe Biden poster before you you go wrestle? Well, usually bef before I go out, I, I let everyone know that uh, Barrio is my main man. But uh, I, I don't know, especially in the case of like WWE, if you think about it, like what the roster makeup looks like now compared to like twenty or thirty years ago, it's probably just more diverse for one thing, and I think that. Uh, you know that that determines people's political leanings as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Bonnie Hammer's role. I, I mentioned her at the end of that that book. There, uh, she is now the I think chairwoman of Universal Entertainment, uh, which is basically you know NBCU that kind of overarching group. For a while there, she was the president of USA Network. A short period of time, I think she left to go work uh, with Sci-Fi, and that's also during the time that WWF decided to go to Viacom. And coming back, I think, was also somewhat um, her piece. And there's been some articles about her. Um, do you buy, do you believe, and can you tell us more about what was Bonnie, role, Bonnie Hammer's role in Vince McMahon and Donald Trump being involved with one another uh, as, as we got into the 2000s? Yes, uh, Bonnie Hammer was really, um, has been a key figure in the WWF's television history, really, as we, we come to celebrate Raw's 25th anniversary. I don't know of her role in 1993, but just kind of taking a step back before. Oh, it, it, it supposedly goes all the way back to um, when WWF was on the USA Network in the 80s, you know, doing, uh, was it primetime wrestling or whatever, is according to the one New York Times article I can recall. 
wow, I, I remember having to uh, bother my parents to, to, to get to watch primetime wrestling sometimes as they just wanted to watch their own programming in primetime. It was a little intrusive from 8 to 10 or 9 to 11 to be watching this show that they didn't care about. But Yeah, um, but you needed those Rick McGraw matches. Yes. I, I actually enjoyed it because you know, there were some competitive matches where you wouldn't really get them patient, uh, but, but not to go too far afield, but, you know, she was an, an essential uh, person, uh, you know, with the Attitude Era, with sort of cheering that on and, and getting McMahon to sort of look at things differently, not necessarily in terms of shock TV, but sort of like upgrading things and, and modernizing and being sort of more part of the culture and, and what was going on. So as her role with Trump, it was more sort of organization-wide in that there was a need uh, in two ways. One was that for The Apprentice, as, as with many reality shows of this competition-type basis, um, you know, it's interesting the first time, right, everyone loved The Ultimate Fighter the first time, but the fourth or fifth go-around, it, it begins to get um, a bit stale. You know, how Same many with different enough. Yeah, how many different ways can you look at it? And so that, that show, I believe the fourth season, it was being considered for cancellation. It wasn't exactly clear which way it would go, and it seemed like um, they would benefit from an infusion of, of interest or, or new fans. Um, and for the WWE, of course, they were... Um, doing well, uh, but, uh, you know, the Attitude Era was over. Um, Cena was um, was uh, nearly emerging. I'm not sure how, far, how high he was on the pecking order at that time. He might have already been a superstar. Um, but they were looking for something for WrestleMania. And knowing that Trump was involved with McMahon before um, and had attended events and such, um, there, was a, there was a connection there. There was a suggestion that they um, get together. I don't know if originally it was thought out as far as, you know, this will be a WrestleMania main event, hair versus hair. I know Brian Alvarez um, was the first that I saw to report that this was going to be something more when there was the uh, Trump, um, uh, Rosie O'Donnell you know, uh, skits on television that this was going to actually lead to Trump being on the show, perhaps culminating in Raw or the Royal Rumble. Huh. And and I, I just find it, you know, fascinating because you also have those those nice connections there, the you're fired catchphrase. Um, you mentioned in the book something I totally forgot, which was the Celebrity Apprentice was not intended to be the Donald Trump show. It was intended to have a rotating chair of kind of executives at, at for each season, and it was just the success of the first season that kind of catapulted it to become the Donald Trump repetitive show. Is that right? Yeah, so it was, um, he had sort of stolen the show, stolen the concept, um, and um, it, it became that, okay, instead of putting whomever next, um, Mark, I don't know, Mark Cuban or, or would have been it, but whoever it may be, that, that would be the next um, celebrity to, to host an apprentice where perhaps they would have a different process and a different way of approaching things that it became, you know, the Trump show where you can go on without him, which, you know, 
isn't isn't uncommon in you know reality TV. Just an example. Um, uh, my family and I like to watch the Toy Box on on ABC. So the first season, uh, the toy inventors had to go through um, you know the uh, a representative from Mattel and a representative from wherever. And then if it was good, then they would go to the kids to get judged. Um, what they realized was that people want to see the kids judging the toys. So they- <laughs> completely the first version and go to the second. And so one, one could argue that Bonnie Hammer played an enormous role in kind of reintroducing Donald Trump to uh, a modern generation, putting him as a big star and uh, uh, catapulting him kind of to where he is now. And I think it, it, that that's kind of intriguing to me to imagine that kind of alternative world history where, you know, the apprentice after one season goes to somebody else's chair. And the question about, you know, does Donald Trump still become this institution that he he later became by by continuing that run and then kind of expanding upon it? It, it was interesting because Trump was such a big figure of the 80s and the 90s. Um, certainly here in New York City, uh, the name Trump did evoke success. Um, I'd been into Trump Tower a few times, or if you'd see a new development going up on the, on the West Side Highway of Manhattan, and it would say Trump on it, it would, you know, you'd be like, wow, you know. So it, he was definitely, you know, known and, and part of the culture, but to become sort of like a top celebrity where a oh, heartland celebrity almost. You know, someone outside of just the, the New York City area, but someone in the middle of the country that they would know and support and, and feel like they, they had some understanding of who this guy was. Yes, to really break through, um, Hammer definitely gave him a wonderful opportunity with that. With the WrestleMania, okay, that was, um, you know, icing, icing on the cake in, in terms of his general context. But, um, you know, if they were able to draw, and, and the ratings did increase for, for the series finale, if they were able to draw a couple more million from that, then good for them. You mentioned Maria, you know, accompanying Trump on a couple of these, you know, come down to sign the contract type things. And I had completely forgotten that Maria Kanellis had actually been a contestant on The Celebrity Apprentice uh, at, at one point here and then was, quote, fired for her potty mouth. Yeah, Maria is actually one of those surprising people uh, that really sort of found herself in a number of times flowing into the the second half of the book, the more modern uh, take of, of Trump, where um Right, she would be one of the um, one of the women that would accompany Trump down to the ring for the contract signing um, when uh, when Trump and McMahon had the um, the ownership of Raw press conference that was very odd in, in Wisconsin as it would be over that night. Uh, his ownership, Maria was was prominent there, and, and her face was actually on on the back of the truck, and he said, "We love you, Maria." And um, and the ice bucket uh, and, challenge connection too, right? Doesn't Vince McMahon challenge Maria? Which was really odd because she hadn't been part of the company uh, at, at that point. And the typical rule of thumb is that um, you know you don't mention someone, uh, you don't promote someone unless they're around. And they actually paid for her college education when she was part of Ring of Honor. So there seems to be some some um, you know lingering uh, connection or guilt that they have. 
yeah. So her, uh, sorry, to kind of round about to the answer here. So she was on the Celebrity Apprentice, and you know, one of the other celebrities had used the the bathroom uh, and uh, you know left uh, you know an unpleasant uh, odor there, and, and she said that um, she really railed this person out and, and was using some salty language, as, as they say. And Trump said that that was you know, low class or, you know, low brow, whatever it may be. And he fired her from the show because of that. So her, her lock, excuse me, the, the correct term, the term that I should be talking about is locker room talk. So that just, that just yeah. became an interesting point as, as it came out later, his uh, taped interview. And uh, where, which he claimed was just locker room talk. So perhaps Maria taught him those phrases and, and terminology. Or wasn't even him at, at, <laughs> at some point she claimed. Yes. Well, I, and I think it, it it this this highlights two things to me. Number one, the scripted element of reality shows where, you know, if they don't want someone on there, they come up with a reason to manipulate the results in the way that they want. And so who knows what the behind the scenes producer decisions were that led to that being the thing to make someone leave. Uh, and then two, kind of the scripted nature of these celebrity ice bucket challenges where, you know, there's no reason that. Vince would choose to to do these things unless ahead of time you're already working out, okay, I'm going to do this and you're going to do this and we both agree that we're going to release these videos on this date and it's going to look like this and so forth. So I, I just thought it was really funny. Um, just I'd totally forgotten that, that Maria had ever been there. I feel like there's an entire you know article someone could do about uh, WWE stars on reality shows that you forgot about. You know, people on Survivor and people on Dancing with the Stars and, and Chris Jericho's thousand and one different shows he's tried out and uh, so forth. So that'll be interesting. Um, I have a good one for you. Okay. Do you remember John Cena's first appearance on uh, national television? Was it for a car show or was it for the Army Tough Show? What was it? Oh, you're right. Actually, it might have been one of the UPW training show biographies from Discovery, so actually that wasn't a good question. But one of his first appearances through the company was there was on UPN Network sort of one of the first failed um, uh, reality shows where it was, it was something like um, uh, something approximating like a war sort of a, a chase or a fight competition. Yes, the hunt or something. It was. <laughs> so that that was uh, that was his first uh, you know actual reality show that they used him for when when he had that buzz in um, in developmental sort of as the next thing. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what you're talking about now. It's like kind of like a a hide and go seek army type weird survival show thing. Yeah, I'll have to. Well, someone, someone will hopefully uh, chime in on on Twitter and let us know exactly what that show was. Maybe there's even a a clip of it. There's also the clip of I want to be a pro wrestler. I think it was on the Discovery Channel, and it's it's John Cena cutting promos as the prototype. I am from the future, and all this stuff that I, I also remember seeing uh, footage of John Cena at, which is just he's insanely jacked on that show. If you ever want to see uh, quote Cena with as he likes to say it, no anabolics. Uh, uh, just look at his appearance when he's the prototype and he's on that discovery show there. It's insane. Yes. I could be misremembering it, but I, I believe in that show he, they had a scene of him, uh, pushing a card through a supermarket and kind of like loading it up with steaks and other meats. Yes. Yes. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so 
the the it's funny that we do have kind of that contest over Vince and Donald both with the year fired catchphrase. Uh, have you seen any etymology that says you know this is the first time Vince McMahon said you're fired versus this is the first time that Donald used it on Celebrity Apprentice? If there's there ever been a decision on who said it first, that's a great question. No, I didn't see that. Okay, I'm curious. I'm sure someone out there has has tracked it down to find like the first time Vince said it. And of course, with the network now, it's going to be even easier for us to document that. But uh, I, I would be kind of curious to see uh, what the what the the phrases are and the timing is. Um, of course, it's one of those cases where I'm sure a lot of people will claim that you know that's what the way Vince used to say it to uh, Marty Jannetty every time, but uh, uh, it just didn't make tape. If, um, if I was going to guess in terms of a, a public way of doing it, I don't know if Trump did it before the first season of um, The Apprentice, and McMahon was doing it as soon as he became Evil McMahon, right around yeah. 1997. That's true. When he was when he was like firing uh, uh, Austin and whatnot in in the late 90s. Yeah. So. Um, we we have of course the the giant angle here the 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 hair versus hair angle ends up being one of the highest grossing uh, WrestleMania events in history at the time I think it it, it sets the record of the time um, it, it's pretty successful there uh, McMahon of course with his broken pelvis and coccyx uh, not able to wrestle so they choose their wrestlers um, and there's some rumor apparently that it might be Shawn Michaels versus Booker T but we ended up with Umaga versus Lashley uh, yeah there's there's a lot of odd names kind of thrown out there. Hogan, Shawn Michaels, Booker T, um, Shane McMahon. <laughs> so they, they were Always kind of Shane way. McMahon. Whenever you don't know who to advertise against a star, throw Shane McMahon in there. Um, but but it, it's interesting, too, because, you know, with Lashley supposedly coming back, you know, he just left TNA uh, Impact and is supposedly on his way back to WWE. Um He's he's a guy that is in this enormous high profile event, and then within a short period of time, he gets injured, and then he's gone from WWE very, very, very quietly, uh, allegedly for kind of tension with both uh, the way Crystal was being treated, and then also with his tension with Michael Hayes at the time. Um, it's just kind of amazing when you see someone and you'd be like, "Wow!" Within two years, both of these people were gone from WWE and so it's so strange that you know like you mentioned when they, they talk about it later they don't even want to mention Omaga because he's dead by that point uh, when they're doing the Hall of Fame inductions yes it was it was just an odd time for the company um, you know they, they go through these periods as, as you know of, of great success and then there's, there's not normally a, a secession plan which we see in, on the corporate level sometimes as well, um, where they're, they're trying to find their way as to the next star, and sometimes they'll, they'll go, they'll take odd turns, or uh, as McMahon is, is often rumored to do when he sees someone with them that looks like they're chiseled out of rock. Yeah, Blaster think, Lashley, I think he was an OVW and, and was a giant bodybuilder. Yeah, and even if he can't tie his shoes yet, which I'm, I'm not saying that he wasn't, he was that not ready, but sort of rushing him up and giving yeah. him uh, the ECW title, which was really meaningless at that point, but then pushing him to to the main event. But it would have been very hard to get a rub um, from that uh, main event, besides having your name loosely connected to it, not only for uh, Trump and McMahon's involvement, but to have Stone Cold Steve Austin as the referee, he really overshadowed everyone when he did his interviews. 
Yeah, and and though I do think it it speaks a little bit to when someone says, well, why is Lashley coming back now? And people say, Vince has always loved Lashley. And I think the fact he was in such a high-profile part of that storyline speaks to the fact that at least Vince at the time saw a lot in in the opportunity with Lashley because he checked off those boxes he likes of, you know, the big guy with the muscles and, you know – some personality of some sort, you know, Lashley at the time he's developed so much actually. Now he's such a better commodity for the company in some ways, with the exception of his age than he was at that time. Um, you talk about 2007 Vince appears on celebrity apprentice. Uh, this is a, a thing that I don't think anyone remembers. Did you find this episode to go watch it? Yes, I did find the episode and it was clear why no one remembered it in the end. Um, it was really a whole lot of nothing. Um, except to say that, um, you know, as he brought up in the storylines, he wanted to be on The Apprentice, and he did get to be on The Apprentice. Uh, they connected him to uh, a competition that wasn't sort of outside of the realm of his understanding. It was uh, two teams that were going to be promoting a uh, theatrical or entertainment-based event. They had um, the equivalent of, I would say, two pop-out pop-up tents on in Times Square, and he commented that one of the teams um, needed to look uh, more appealing to attract people, and he was gone. <laughs> wow, yeah, that was that's underwhelming to say the least. Um, the uh, Vince McMahon is in a limo. The limo blows up, and maybe a week later, isn't it that um, Chris Benoit uh, uh, murders his family and? You know, they were planning to do the fake funeral of Vince McMahon that night. And so there's even a casket there at the arena when they canceled the event um, and, and just all the confusion at the time. You tell the story that or write in the book that there's a story that that Trump calls to make sure that Vince is OK after the limo blows up. Uh, yes. who, who told this story and do you actually believe that happened? Um, so Triple H um, said it on the uh, the Opie and Anthony show, which was um, shock jocks in New York at the time, kind of like a lower level um, Howard Stern. Uh, Howard Stern. I was going to say lower level man cow, but I don't know if you would go, you know, <laughs> lower level. But but um, I don't know if I believe it. But it was it was an interesting story to tell, and you know, based on you know, considering all the stories we hear now of the president watching television, hearing someone say something or something happening, and then immediately taking it as fact, either retweeting it or using it in a speech or justifying a position with it. Perhaps it's not so absurd to assume that such a ridiculous angle on television uh, that Donald Trump would somehow hear word of it and then be worried about his friend, Vince McMahon. Exactly. So that's what I imagine. I don't think he was sitting there listening to Opie and Anthony, but somehow somebody mentioned it. Maybe, you know, his sons are, are obviously fans as they often go to the shows with him. Um, so maybe one of them was listening and, and mentioned it to him and he became concerned as it's his friend. So he called to try and find out what's going on. The Donald J. Trump Foundation uh, has come up a few times in the news about how little donations have actually been contributed by the Trump family and how their number one contributors is actually Vince McMahon and Linda McMahon oftentimes as payment for their, his various appearances. Is that accurate? Yes. So it gets, it gets a little bit confusing and, and it, it leads to both parties being able to deny certain things. So when it goes to the foundation, Trump could say, I wasn't paid for my wrestling appearances. And at times McMahon, Vince McMahon has said that, um, 
uh, it wasn't the WWE that, that paid for this, that he did it personally. So that it, it was know. Vince's own money that he was spending here, not company money. Yes. So I don't know exactly why neither wants to be connected with it at certain times, but basically, um, you know, themselves or the company contributed about $6.5 or $5.5 million to the Donald Trump Foundation, J. Trump Foundation, which was um, related to uh, the WrestleMania 23 payoff and appearances around that and the um, payoffs related to um, the uh, raw ownership, which was eight days. Now, the other big Trump in WWE angle, uh, kind of pre-Hall of Fame induction, was the Vince sells or Trump buys uh, Raw from Vince, and USA Network sends out a press release about this, and it causes confusion in the marketplace. Um, do you were you surprised when you you know going through the story? Was this something you had remembered ahead of time, or is this something that you kind of were were remembering only when you got to it? Um, it was something I was familiar with, but not intimately. Um, by that point, I had stopped watching week to week, but um, had continued following closely through uh, through the Observer and other sources. Um, but it it was sort of interesting and confusing because it happened so quickly. So the the most interesting, uh, the first interesting part was that how the news outlet just sort of took it for what it was, right? Here's a press release from a reputable uh, network. Um, this is what they're announcing. So this is what... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 